The following podcast is proudly brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use the link in the description and use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen. And also use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off windows, keys, and die shrink to get 3% off everything else on the website at cdkeyoffer.com. Now on with the show. Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and uh, I am joined today by someone who was on before I was scouring for, uh, honestly, just someone who's well-informed and informed in a way that isn't hyper-focused just on the latest gaming stuff, but I think someone who can appreciate what these roadmaps Intel and AMD have just revealed what they really mean and what the significance is down the pike. Not someone who's like, well, one person won by 5% in one game. You know, <laughs> I, I think at the macro level, there's much more going on here. And it's been two years. So, yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Wendell. I'm from Level 1 Text. I'm your friendly neighborhood computer janitor. So I like to work on things that are high performance. I like to work on uh, stuff that's with open source. I get to work with... Um, with uh, PhDs sometimes on the stuff uh, under the hood. I do videos sometimes on building things that you shouldn't build. You know, it's like, I'm going to build a, a home server that runs virtual machines for everything, including the router. And it's like, that sounds like that's not going to be reliable. So fun stuff. I like, um, I like this stuff. I like looking at the performance. I like looking at where the industry is going. I mean, even just outside the whole, uh, you know, it's like, what about arm arms? Yeah. <laughs> arms lurking underneath the hood. Uh, so I of like half of your devices, not, yeah. you know, more than probably AMD and Intel. <laughs> yeah. And so I like, I like all this stuff. I like learning and I like seeing where software can take us and, and, and well, software and hardware together can take us because it requires both of them to work together. And a lot of, uh, a lot of the headache and consternation comes from when the hardware team and the software team don't talk to one another. So. Now, what I don't remember, what made you start a YouTube channel, and, and what did you do before you started a YouTube channel? What do you do professionally? Uh, or is this what you do professionally now still, or is it both, like, two different things? No, I just I just kind of got sucked into it. I really didn't plan to. It just it just it was just a thing that, that kind of happened. Uh, I still work in the industry and do a lot of uh, fun, interesting stuff, but it really is just basically janitorial stuff. I mean, you still have to know what you're doing in terms of how to connect the dots because a lot of the problems that I solve are the hardware people not talking to the software people or vice versa or or just you know unclogging a toilet basically it's like oh this is running really slow because there's a bottleneck over here and it's like that's impossible and then you look at it it's like no really we've we've done the math the the bottleneck is here and it's like oh okay that's probably that's probably where that is so i get to spend some time doing youtube stuff and covering stuff in the news and technology in the news. I really like tech and policy as well. I'm not really, like is not really the right word. I'm worried about us slowly boiling, as in the frog is slowly boiling. You're passionate about it. You're engaged. You care. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you don't always have that. And um, I, and I don't always, uh, there's a really famous XKCD comic where uh, it's like, um, uh, 
you know, your work in academia versus your work in, in business. And so you, you, you know, you show your boss or you show somebody in, in academia and it's like, my gosh, we, we gave you an impossible problem and you, you solved it in just a few lines of code. This is going to be, you know, several PhD dissertations mm -hmm. and a team of students and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then it's in business. And then in business, it's like, oh, you got the email to stop jamming up? Great. Can you help me with my outlook? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's kind of how it feels sometimes. So it's a, YouTube's a, a sort of outlet, I guess, for, uh, uh, it's like, is anybody paying attention to this? Is, uh, know do we do we understand what it is that we're building here is this uh is somebody going to weaponize this and it's going to be bad for society i don't know it's kind of worried about those things from time to time well yeah i think when you work for any big company whether it's computer automotive anything it's easy to if you're an individual employee and i suppose everyone is an individual employee no one is a hive mind yet they it's easy to go to work drink your coffee clock out have a few drinks at home and kind of not think about the implications or if I think, and I mean that in both good and bad ways. I mean, it allows people to put their head down and just work as a greater thing, but it also can mean like you say that they'll forget that what they're working on maybe isn't helpful to anyone, or maybe like people forget like what they're doing isn't really contributing anymore. You're just doing the same job every day. And I think a lot of these giant companies kind of lose track of if they're directing all of their employees towards something constructive all the time. Like I think that's probably what's led to a lot of the issues at Intel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can look at it microscopically and microscopically. And, uh, you know, um, even just things like, uh, just culturally, like there's the distinction between like a blue collar job and a white collar job. But now a lot of the, the blue, you know, if you want to be a plumber or an electrician, those are really, really highly paid careers because nobody went into them for 20 years because mm -hmm. that was a blue collar profession. And it's like, do I want this scary, you know, rando plumber's crack guy in my house working on my stuff? And now it's like, well, you're going to either have to DIY it or, you know, you're going to have to let, you know, change when the way that you think about pipe, things. When there's a main pipe shooting water into your basement gallons <laughs> a minute, you want the guy in your house and yeah i mean i've had to i haven't had to deal with that now that i live here in nashville but in peoria illinois during the winters it would get cold and yeah i mean i was always very impressed by just how quickly some of those plumbers could come up with the issue get the parts get in there and it's a lot of thinking on the spot and doing a lot of the same, but not, it's always a little different. And that's why they're paid so much, because it's one of the last jobs where they have to actually be technically knowledgeable to a certain extent and make decisions on their own. It is amazing how much technology goes into that. And it is amazing how much technology is used to shore up old technologies that are still in use. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're uh, you know, your main <laughs> soil line out to the municipality is cast iron, Chances are it's not it's it's got a limited useful lifetime. It's probably four inch, but you know there's new technologies where you can have this inflatable resin thing that they inject through the cast iron, and it literally casts a three inch pipe inside the four inch pipe, so that you don't have to dig up your yard. And uh, you know it's on it's it's not quite the same thing as fabricating CPUs, 
but it still requires that the general population or the people doing those kind of jobs, you know, they, they like you say, they think on their toes. They've got a, a mind for diagnostics. They are, they're willing to follow the scientific method. Logic, basic, basic Boolean algebra is going on in their brain, whether they realize it or not, in terms of figuring out the problems. Well, so let me actually start here then for our conversation. I mean, and it's a pretty open-ended question, but like, how do you feel intel's doing because i think that everyone was saying doom and gloom stuff probably when zen 3 came out and then pat's been taking over made a lot of bold claims seems to be walking back a few of those bold claims <laughs> as he slowly realized oh this might take time to steer this massive ship and i actually pointed this out to some of my youtube comments this morning like you know is pat a, i've already seen some people in the comments like oh well pat's failed it's like no Lisa Sue joined AMD in 2014. Think of how many years it took for anyone to perceive AMD as getting things on track. So, I, like, how do you feel about all those things I just brought up, and like how Intel's general health is? It's uh, it's really interesting to look at how many changes that uh, Pat Gelsinger has made, both on the surface and, uh, you know, that there are latent. I don't want to say under the hood or secretly, but there there have been changes under the hood that there's not been a press release about but you can definitely see ripples from the change at intel and you have to like imagine that you're in intel like this will probably put you in the right mindset you're in intel and you're looking around and yeah amd you know that's been that's been done to death and where we are right now today is probably too early to make guesses about what's happening tomorrow but if you look at a five or a ten year trend inside intel you're looking around yeah amd and zen 3 big win small team big win it wasn't like they invested half a trillion dollars mm -hmm. in that it was basically a bunch of really smart people threaded the needle and they threaded the needle to the nth degree and it's not just am5 like am5 is actually a side effect of what they're doing in server and high performance compute which is not just cpus it's also gpus the instinct stuff i'll come back to because that was in the in the analyst day thing and i think a lot of people are missing the details here or missing the the microscopic thing by hyper focusing on little little tiny details so you're inside intel and you're looking at that happening but if you're not paying attention there's also like amazon amazon is you know a big customer for all of this stuff and mm -hmm. you look at what amazon is doing with graviton 2 and now graviton 3 and you're looking around at your server parts and you need a win on both performance per watt and general application performance and architecturally and things that traditionally don't go in a CPU, your long vector instructions, which you bet the farm on AVX 512. Mm -hmm. And AVX 512 solves some of those problems, but AVX 512 is not a replacement for you know non-branchy vectorized code like you're going to run on a GPU. So if you're if you're getting in there and you're looking at that and you you think the industry is headed the same way that Amazon and AMD does with AMD diversifying their portfolio, which we'll come back to, but also what Amazon is doing with Graviton, which has been, you know, with Amazon can smooth over the problems with adopting a new architecture because they're Amazon. It's like their own Linux distro, their own compile. They can look inside Java binaries. It's like, oh, it's Java. It should be cross-platform. You'd be surprised how many people break the rules on stuff like that. And there's x86 micro ops inside a Java class file. And so Amazon has the resources to solve those problems. Uh, I don't think those kind of problems are even on ARM's radar. 
Um, mm. and, I, and I don't think those kind of problems would have been on ARM's radar had NVIDIA acquired them. Um, but certainly the writing on the wall with all this different stuff is that we have to think beyond x86, beyond CPU. And so you look at what AMD is doing with their press release day and their stuff and their roadmap. They really didn't. They really didn't give a lot of detail from their mm-hmm. ro- their 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 roadmap. But there was a, there was there was some new information there. But there really wasn't a lot of new information. So Pensando, for example, it's like that's just you know was anybody paying attention? Did anybody really expect that? And it's like, well, wait a minute. That kind of makes sense for a couple of different reasons we can talk about. But there were acquisitions already in that same sort of data processing thing, first with NVIDIA and then second with with Intel. And then we've got Intel with Arc and the XE. And, you know, Intel probably has some wins, it looks like in the Chinese market with um, Tencent and and some other companies with sort of the first generation Arc and being able to emulate uh, uh, Android or run Android in the cloud for remote gaming and that kind of thing. And so you're inside Intel and you're looking at all this kind of stuff. And it's like, how are we going to connect the dots on all this different stuff? Because Intel's got the developers. They've got the math kernel library. They've got the Intel One API. They know they need to bring that together. And they're doing a pretty good job, I think, with One API. I've interviewed some of those guys, and that's that's working really well. So that's mm-hmm. one, one. I've heard pretty good things about that, too. And that's that's one piece of it. But then you also have the x86 and the server component of it. And then you have the interface. And right now we're still stuck with PCI Express, but CXL is coming down the pike. And it's like, ooh, what's Intel doing for CXL? And what's what what else is on the, on the roadmap? And so... When you look at it in that context, a lot of the stuff coming out on the Intel roadmap, even the stuff that slips, really just looks like a like a me too. And that's concerning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, let me throw in a reader mail question here. Sarcastro writes, and he says, Hi, Tom and Wendell. To begin with, I will be drinking some Orange Crush while listening to this episode. I assume I'll get, that's an insult. I'll get oh, tea today, but uh, it's fine. Gelsinger inherited problems at Intel. Can you shed any light on how a culture was allowed to develop where products are consistently 6, 8, or 24 months late or just not delivered? Eroding market share, consumer confidence, and seemingly uh, uh, ability. Is it overambition or hubris feeding perpetual dysfunction? It seems this level of dysfunction and failure take considerable effort to do this badly. Yeah, and I think this is worth... Because I've gotten a, attacked by some people recently, like I don't get how good some of Intel's stuff could be. And I'm like, guys, I'm the one who leaked Re- Meteor Lake's Redwood Cove Raptor like a year ago. I, I'm aware of the performance. The problem is if it comes out a year later than I expected, like Meteor Lake or something, that, well, okay, now it's competing with an entirely different product. That's why my opinion is changing. <laughs> you know, like, and, and I don't know if you have any thoughts about like this, just the seeming it just complete inability to execute on anything when they say they will. Well, it's not, I don't think it's, so in the pre-PAT days, the explanation I think is actually much, much simpler than that. You have, you know, nothing against Bob Swan, and I, I don't know, but having worked in, in the industry and having worked, done consulting gigs for, for Fortune 500 companies and solving some big problems, when you have, if, if that personality type, if Bob Swan is the personality type that I think that he was, he has an accounting background. Those mm-hmm. guys are absolutely obsessive bean counters. You have this, you see this sometimes in, in Google for, for like technical bean counting as opposed to dollar bean counting where it's like, okay, I want you to empirically give me an A-B test that shows me A is better than B. And with, uh, with things like uh, CPU development, you basically bet the farm every time you do something really big. And I'm sure that Bob Swan was looking at Intel 
Prezen and saying, well, we're running into uh, fundamental physical limitations. It's easy to sit back and say, I've got a CPU that's clocked at five gigahertz and the speed of light, which is the fastest thing that there is, can travel that far mm -hmm. in one five billionth of a second. That is crazy. Like there's the the fastest thing that there is. I mean, we're we're not quite on the scale of like a piece of silicon, but we really are. And we know that that Intel is is spending money in case silicon photonics takes off, in case some substrate other than silicon, maybe carbon, maybe some kind of carbon nanotubes. We know that they're doing those kind of experiments. And so he's looking at those things and he's probably looking at those line items on the budget sheet and he's saying, "Well, we're Intel. Nobody else is spending money on this stuff like we are no one is going to figure out the the fundamental no one's going to figure out how to make the speed of light faster that's just not going to happen and if it was it was going to happen on our watch because we're the only people that are spending money to do this so why do we want to hasten uh the adoption of these new technologies and mm. that and that might sound you might be thinking okay i mean that sounds good but have you got any proof optane Optane is the proof of that. Optane is a wonderful, wonderful technology. They may or may not be having scaling problems with it. There was the Micron partnership. Where are we doing the fab? I don't know. I have 5800X 3D parts. I love it. You know, people that were using it for gamers, uh, gaming stuff, things like Star Systems, really, really good stuff. Optane requires software changes. I only know of Oracle. Oracle went, I think, from what I understand, I haven't laid hands on one of these systems, but I talked to somebody that, had, that told me they had laid hands on one of these systems. Oracle went all in on Optane. And when you have persistent memory and you're doing extremely high performance database stuff, it is absolutely a game changer, but it requires software modification. I read what was probably could be described as an academic paper, although I think it was meant to be a white paper, but it was more of an academic pa paper. The, the folks had modified PostgreSQL to work better with persistent memory, because if you look at the state of the art of stuff that's out there right now for PostgreSQL, which is a great open source database system, not anything to do with Oracle, um, as you scale memory bandwidth and cores on a single system, when you're worried about ACID compliance and all of the really smart computer science stuff that people have done to say that this database is safe to use and all the different failure modes that we've taken into account, you still get a, uh, a fall off in performance. It does not scale linearly. And this is a problem when we're talking about two socket 64 core systems and memory densities exceeding you know, four terabytes. Um, things like the processor cache, stuff like that, doesn't really do any good because the database is so optimized that it's basically a random access pattern. It's sort of problematic. When you change the algorithms so that it can deal with persistent memory or that the assumption is that the memory will persist across reboots, then you get your linear scaling back. And it is amazing, and the performance is just through the roof, but it requires significant software engineering. If you're a bean counter, and looking at this, you're saying, well, this doesn't exist. And we as Intel are going to invest X number, you know, hundreds of millions, probably on the order of billions of dollars in this new technology. And then immediately our competitors are going to be able to use this. There's not really a way to protect this at an intellectual property mm. level because the patent system doesn't really cover this and open source software. And we will be the bad guys if we go after 
you know, other companies for doing this. So we have our, our partner Oracle on the one hand that is doing this and charging an obscene amount of money and making a crazy amount of money. Maybe we can make a little bit of that money with Optane. And then we have, you know, some some plucky academics that are doing the same kind of thing with PostgreSQL to try, try to drive adoption. But if you use persistent memory or Optane storage, like traditional storage, you really don't get the benefit from it yeah. that you otherwise would. And it requires the software engineering. The problem is that that will immediately be useful to everybody else. Mm -hmm. You're looking at what Samsung is doing with NAND or Keoxia. Keoxia has a NAND product that is darn close to Flash or uh, Optane performance, uh, but with NAND Flash, which is crazy that they're able to do that. And so your competitors will benefit if you solve the software engineering architectural problem almost immediately. And so if you're a bean counter, you're looking at that, it's like, why are we spending money on this? We don't need to be spending money on this. This is not good for shareholders. We shouldn't do this. And so that's until you have somebody like Pat Gelsinger, who is, we're going to do this for the sake of the technology. You have the bean counters looking at this that are kind of, you know, whittling these, these projects out from underneath themselves um, by just, you know, budget and organization. And can we do this in a way that only Intel can benefit from this? Can we, can we own the math kernel library without being the bad guys? And that is, you know, that is a capitalistic thing. We can't ascribe... We can't really ascribe too much uh, moral intent for that. But, um, you know, it, it, on a long enough time cycle with those things happening, it creates the perfect uh, stage for Zen 1 to enter the show. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and then what do you have to say about the hardware-like delays, though? Like Alchemist is, and, and this is something I pointed out in a recent video pretty heavily. I mean, most delays, Intel would just say, it's the node. You know, <laughs> but they can't make that excuse anymore. 10 nanometer clearly works. They're ramping more and more Ice Lake Xeons that go up to 40 cores. It's, they clearly work fine. You know, Alder Lake is fine. It clocks to 5.5 gigahertz. Clearly, 10 nanometer works now. Yet, they are, from what I'm hearing, Raptor Lake keeps slipping. It was supposed to be quarter three. Now it's pretty clearly quarter four. I hear about Meteor Lake getting delayed. They may blame the note a little bit on that one, but I'm not convinced when Alchemist is coming out a year late, made it TSMC. There's no <laughs> excuse for why that's not the node. And then you see Ponte Vecchio and you go, when is that coming out? Is it? And they are announcing Rialto Bridge. And now Falcon Shores. When I saw Falcon Shores 2024, I actually swore at my monitor. I'm like, you haven't launched <laughs> Ponte Vecchio yet. Who cares when it comes when you claim it comes out? It's not. I don't believe that you that it's going to come out when you tell me it is. Nothing you've said is going to come out in the last two years has come out besides Alder Lake. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah. I don't. It's it. We it's we're too caught up in the what's happening right now at this little tiny segment of. Uh, this little tiny segment of time. I'll tell you what's interesting about Alder Lake is that Alder Lake is not super power inefficient if mm. you are willing to not squeeze every absolute just last drop of performance out of it. But the bathtub curve on it is really is real. Um, meaning it can be quite efficient in gaming and mixed usage. It actually yeah. often uses less at like let's say fifty percent usage compared to Zen three half the time. But if you push it to the max, it uses a boatload of energy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I don't know if that suggests that they're running into similar kinds of problems. But if we look at what's happening with server parts, because like mm. bottom line, the desktop parts really don't matter. 
And I don't think that Intel should be really super concerned about desktop parts. And I don't, AMD is not, is, they're not, I don't want to, again, I don't want to ascribe their behavior, but you know, the desktop is just nice. It's gravy on the side. It is enterprise performance is where the money is and a shareholder happiness. And that is where you can have the, the massive, uh, uh, you know, income from those kinds of things. So, if you look at it that way, and you look at it and it's like, okay, can we develop a product that's also useful for desktop? Sure, we can tweak a few little knobs when we're making a server part and reuse it for the desktop, and that's great. And that's more or less what happened with, uh, you know, if we look at like Zen 3 and to Zen 5, I mean, that's more or less what happened. Zen 3 chiplets are still useful in, in, mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, in the enterprise. Uh, Zen 5's nicer, but Zen 5 in the enterprise is being sold to such a degree, that might be why, you know, Threadripper Pro is still a Lenovo exclusive, although we're, we're probably close to that not being the case anymore. When you say Zen 5, do you mean Zen 4 or Zen 3 with Vcash, or are you, are, are you literally talking about Zen 5 in a year and a half from now? Yeah, yeah, well, Stretch it all out. Mm -hmm. uh, think about it a different way. It's really what I'm I'm trying to get you to do. I think Amazon and Microsoft probably already have Genoa, and they may already have prototypes of things beyond Genoa. And the products that come from that end up being sort of redistilled down to the desktop line. Yeah, and I've tried to explain that to people, that the fact that AMD is able to compete with Intel at all in, in gaming <laughs> with just using these... Server chiplets is bizarre. Is bizarre. It's not even monolithic, and they're able to compete in gaming. Like, yeah, yeah I don't. They're know just what, using smaller epics, guys. <laughs> I don't know what is going on behind the scenes, but it, to me, it looks like AMD is a boring execution machine, and they're only making very small changes to their laser focus on um, stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and it looks like Intel is in more of a reactionary. Like, we have to do this. If you look at the i nine. They didn't have to juice the i9 to the nth degree. If you look at the release motherboards for Alder Lake, it, it doesn't look like the motherboard partners were clued into the fact that PL2 could just run forever. I think that was a late change in the Alder Lake release that you could just run the i9 forever at 241 watts if you can manage the power and if you can manage the thermals. And you can't manage the power on some of the release motherboards for Alder Lake for the i9 for the for 241 watts, but generally the you know it'll it'll keep up and it'll turbo forever and that's that's great. The same thing happened with Xeon. I have a Xeon 80 with the dual 8120, yeah, 81, no no, 80, 8130. It's the I have a super micro motherboard from launch with the platinum 8380s there. Brain slow. Uh and it was not designed for turbo forever, but those CPUs actually do support turbo forever. They came out with a BIOS update later that made a huge difference in sustained multi-core performance on those 40-core monsters, and they perform mm -hmm. a lot better. And they're very—they're actually pretty competitive um, at the high end for you know things that you need 32 plus cores for. Um, and I think that was a, a very sort of reactionary thing to do. And with Alder Lake's release, it's like, well, you know, now might be the time for, for Vcash. And so they just released Vcash. But certainly other people already had access to Vcash. And um, for the AMD invited me to an uh, event for the, uh, the Milan X launch. And I got to talk to people from Altair and Ansys and Microsoft and 
uh, well, Microsoft after that, but some people that worked on the stuff internally with Microsoft about how they're, they're using 3D vCache in the real world. And it became apparent that this whole time, AMD has been super involved with companies that potentially are going to buy thousands of, of, of CPUs and asking their smart people, what problem is it that you're trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's a pretty interesting contrast to Intel saying, this is how we're going to solve the problem. You need to adopt it. We have, you know, Optane, and we would like for, you know, you to now use Optane to solve your problem. Whereas AMD is looking at it and saying, what, you know, what's, what's your workload? Okay, we looked at your workload. We think these things are going to make it go fast. And it, that may, those conversations may have started and led to the original Infinity Cache. I mean, not Infinity mm -hmm. Cache, but Infinity Fabric and all of the stuff that uh, went into that. I, I don't know. Um, but it sure looks that way. And if that's true, then AMD is basically outsourcing some of their R&D to corporate partners that are buying lots mm -hmm. of stuff. And maybe, well, maybe that's also in the supercomputers like Oak Ridge. Yeah, well, absolutely. And it's funny, uh, the lead up to the latest console reveals, like the PlayStation 5, I knew they were working with a few companies. One of them was one that was working on the SSD. And the meetings that they had with like Sony engineers and AMD, they were like cross brainstorming, talking about what can be used in the future. And some of the accelerators I'm hearing about in Genoa sound kind of similar to some <laughs> of the data directing things in the PS5. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, AMD is absolutely like they're like, oh, well, that was a novel idea by like Mark Cerny at PlayStation. This could probably help us move data between with CXL on Genoa and all these other things as well, you yeah. know, and they keep pulling in more things that way. Exactly. And so, you know, again, at, the, at a very small scale, microscopically, Threadripper 5000, Threadripper Pro 5000, where the heck is it? Well, Lenovo's got it, but those chiplets are so valuable in a server space that mm -hmm. I think it's sort of starved the supply a little bit and they got to trickle it out and Lenovo, but also... The OEM, the integration aspect, and the what problem are we trying to solve? It's like, well, here's your Lenovo validated creative workstation that is going to work perfectly with ABC, XY, and Z. Because it's not trivial to get PCI Express stuff working correctly. It's not trivial to get every little peripheral validated. I mean, there are uh, there's crazy stuff that I, I ran into that you just absolutely wouldn't believe. Like Intel P4500 data center SSDs. These are you know, an Abrams tank of, of flash data storage. And they have certain issues with PCI Express implementations when the host system is so insanely fast that uh, the SSD, the SSD will actually trigger an interrupt before the data is ready or something like that. And uh, when the CPU shows up to pick up the data that it was told was ready via interrupt, the data is not actually there. Uh, and so you need a workaround at the system level and the system management thing. And that's not always there, uh, you know, depending on your platform. Some, some motherboard platforms have implemented that on newer CPUs and some haven't. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of that kind of engineering that come from partners. And I think that's, you know, you get a little bit of that from Lenovo. You get a little bit of that from other integrators. And definitely AMD's benefiting from that from from uh, Amazon and others. Meanwhile, Intel's usually a trailblazer. They're we're going to do this thing internally. This is how it is, and this is how we're going to how we're going to do this. And 
what Intel's finding now too, I'm sure, is that they've had a lot of brain drain, and so a lot of that institutional knowledge yeah. now is, is also gone, and and a contributing factor to some of the some of the issues that you know you ascribed to earlier. Well, a, a lot of the impression I get, and and you know, the last time I was kind of around Silicon Valley for a hot chips was, of course, like 2019. For the pandemic, of course, I haven't really <laughs> been able to go to any of those events since then, but I got the feeling from a lot of Intel engineers that even back then they were excited and working, but that there has there was a drain of good, not upper, just upper, but middle management, like draining away. Because anytime I would talk to like contacts at AMD, they're like, yeah, we're the first people to get 64 cores in there. We're the first people to do this, do that. And they were, you know, a lot of, a lot of these people that work in the industry, the impression I've been getting lately is they were, they're not in it for the money. They all make plenty of money too. These people are well paid at all companies, even if some can afford to pay a little better, but they're more excited to like trailblaze at AMD and a lot of the people that drive, because you need more than just good upper management and good engineers. You need the people that make the middle decisions every day that keep things going on on time. It seems like Intel's lost some of that. And I just feel like a lot of the people like obsessing over Raptor like versus Raphael on desktop right now, who's going to win gaming by 5%, you know, <laughs> like... It, it they're might, missing the greater picture. Yeah, no, I definitely agree that missing the big picture is is there's a lot of that going on, and I don't, you know, the whole obsession with Raptor Lake versus Meteor Lake versus AM5 and what's coming, and you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. There's there's so much to unpack there that, and so much that doesn't make sense to me in terms of like this level of obsession with all the stuff that's going into that because ultimately those products. Well, ultimately, on the AMD side, those products are derived from uh, server parts, and so you know if it's disappointing or if it is doesn't perform as good as desktop people expect, it's still going to be super insanely disruptive in the server space. The thing that nobody ever says that is melts my brain every day is like, okay, we're we're talking about the very highest level, and it's like, oh, there's, you know, trade for, you know, trading blows here, and we added Vcash, and now there's 768 megs of cash on these server parts, and blah, 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 and 1500 X3D. But down here, what we were rocking for servers three or four years ago mm -hmm. has elevated up to, like, here. And so I know. The, the floor has come up so far that it is just absolutely bananas. It is insane. It's like, oh, here's my my cheap Chromebook with its 16 cores or 16 threads of madness. Not really, but that's where we're going to well, be. Well, some of them do, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so that's why when I heard Intel's, you know, recent, like, calls to investors where they basically just said everything's delayed and we have no explanation. And then you look at AMD's financial analyst day, I'm like, look, I don't, you know, we'll see what happens this fall. From what I'm hearing, Raptor Lake sounds like it's slipping a little bit. So effectively, Zen 4 and Raptor Lake, they're going to launch at the same time. They're going to be within 10% of each other at probably everything, honestly. <laughs> and so like a who, whatever. But when I look at Intel's roadmap, it's like, well, we've got this 10 nanometer Raptor Lake for a year. And Meteor Lake is going to hopefully be here a year from now. And meanwhile, AMD is like, we got Raphael, then... Zen 4 with Vcash and Zen 4C, then Zen 5, Zen 5 Vcash, Zen 5. They have four nanometer Zen 4 parts coming in APUs. And 
that would suggest if they wanted to next year, if Zen 5 was at all delayed, they could do a four nanometer refresh of Raphael, guys, with Vcash. What do you think that? And all of this is feeding into server and other products. They've got all these custom things coming out. They've got a 96-core Genoa, then Genoa X, and I'm told they have a Genoa with HBM similar to Sapphire Rapids pictures uh, that are coming out. They've got Bergamo coming out. And me, and then they've got Zen 5 that I hear goes up to, at least in its current designs and testing uh, products, 256 cores. And I'm like, that's just absolutely absurd. <laughs> and it's like, I'm aware Raptor like might win this Cinebench single threading by 10%. But do you guys understand that they're about to have like 60 cores competing with 96 cores and then 128 cores and then 64 core to Emerald Rapids competing with 256 core Turin? That's going to filter, like, AMD chose to make a 16-core Raphael. If they want to, look at Turin in a year and a half is going to have 256 cores. They can make it bigger pretty soon if they want to, and I don't see anything that Intel has that they can bring out for the next year. It is uh, it is going to be interesting how how that shakes out, but ultimately I think the cores per socket is going to be less relevant Uh it has to be. It's getting to just hilarious numbers. Well, not just because of the numbers, but just because um, performance scaling and power density scaling. Um, so we know that from the leaks in terms of uh, things at, at the highest end, at the highest levels of performance, you know, 1U servers that have phase change cooling, 1U mm -hmm. servers that, that have a centralized, you know, whole rack or whole data center liquid cooling. And for most, unless density, you know, is a is a, a really serious concern. I'm talking about, you know, right next to the stock exchange where you need to cram as much as yeah. possible in. And the speed of light is a real problem there, too. I interviewed one of those people a couple of years ago. It's an interesting <laughs> job he has just fighting for milliseconds. Yeah. Yeah. They'll uh, they'll do some things. It's uh, it's pretty nuts. And so other than those customers, which are always willing to pay for that, um, Nobody actually wants that in the data center. Nobody wants 500 watts, 600 watts per socket. Some people do, but most people don't. And again, that when we're talking about the very top end, it becomes a very different conversation when we start talking about the middle. And so the sweet spot ends up being, you know, 48 cores with a relatively high clock speed and a relatively high power density, but it's not the absolute maximum performance. It's not the absolute maximum core density. It's not the absolute maximum whatever. But... All of this also leaves the CPU. So if we are worried about four or 600 watts in a CPU socket, what about the AI and machine learning accelerators? What about the memory? We're, you know, 15, 20 watts of DIMM with four terabytes of, of memory in a socket, 16 DIMMs, that's a non-trivial amount of heat to deal with. Um, and so what if you can move some of that back onto the CPU socket for a net cost savings because a lot of mm -hmm. that heat goes in transmission. And so. And it seems like they're doing that with Genoa and Onward. Yes, exactly. And there, there was a lot of that under the covers from, from AMD's press day. But we're going to have server APUs, basically. And so mm -hmm. all of that vector stuff and all of this, the inference processing and all of that stuff is going to happen in the CPU socket. And more of the overall server power budget is going to go to the socket. But really, that's the a good point when you hear 600 watts. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole rest of the server is basically just going to be a physical adapter for the CPU because you get back so much power budget if you just cram all that on one 
giant thing because then you don't have to deal with the interconnects and you don't have to deal with the power loss and everything through that. Uh, and HBM will probably be a factor for that uh, as much as uh, as much power savings as as latency and everything else savings. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'd st- and I, it is funny because some people say, well, well how much energy is Turing going to use? And I'm like, oh, I've heard it could use 600 watts for that 256 <laughs> core. But still, that's even if you cut it in half, 300 watts for 128 cores. And I'm pretty sure the clock speeds on it are expected to be pretty crazy high. And it's like at the in either way, at the meantime, Intel's going to have like a 400 watt 64 core. That just doesn't sound competitive to me like at all or do you do you think it is that that quadrupling of core counts isn't as important as we think it is right now i don't it's it's not it's hard to do the apples to apples math because you don't know how much of the rest of the system you Mm -hmm. can remove um 600 watts in a cpu socket is not unreasonable if you can get power budget back from somewhere else so if we think about like vdi i think vdi is going to be one of the places where uh, AMD comes out of out of left field and completely supplants all other VDI products that are available because they can just do it in the CPU. So if they do that, then you know your typical VDI box, your typical two U VDI box has two to four two hundred ish watt GPU accelerator things, um, and then you know like sixty four forty eight sixty four cores, sixty four cores is not really necessarily the sweet spot in those VDI machines. The higher clock speed with the more cache is helpful. So like the uh, the 75F um, uh, or the 70, uh, 74F CPU, like the 32-core F CPUs, that's the higher clock speed. Those are nice for VDI. Um, but if you can move, if you have uh, something that looks like the uh, CPUs that are in the Oak Ridge supercomputer, you have something that looks like that. You got four... GPU tiles or chiplets, wrong wrong company's terminology. You got four um, GPU Intel chip- says chiplets accidentally all the time now, <laughs> so I think you're safe at this point. You, but you've got the four GPU tiles, and then you got a compute tile, and you've got two of those in two sockets in a system. That, all of a sudden, you don't even, you can do that in one U. You don't even need two U. You could do that in a blade. You could do that mm-hmm. in, in uh, you know, one of those four-node two U things. And... Uh, that might be worth paying an extra 100 or 200 watts per um, per rack unit. Um, but there's not really, there, no one has really attempted to normalize, you know, watts per rack unit. But watts per rack unit is what the data center is worried about. Because they didn't, they didn't build it to handle, you know, 1,000 watts per rack unit. Um, and so you know, it's, it's going to be a problem. It's interesting. One guess I had on a few times that I just referred to as the anonymous server engineer because he was always anonymous. It always had really interesting things to say is when we first started to get whiffs of these like epic APU things like AMD showed kind of they never put a spotlight on it until recently, I don't think. But in the background, you just see like what looked like a server APU on a slide and you're like, well, so they're working on something (laughs) like that. And I asked him, is that really that important? You can just get like a 100 teraflop you know, AI GPU or accelerator and put it in a PCIe slot or, of course, probably something better than a PCIe slot. And he goes, absolutely, because it's simplicity. I can make it thinner. I can put these two APUs in one blade, and I know that I have to cool those sockets, and then I'm freaking done. I don't have to worry about bugs through the PCIe slots. I don't have to worry, oh, do we need to get Delta fans to push it through? It's just, no, it's liquid-cooled. It's here. It's done. I'd love to double power usage of an APU and just not have to make it thinner overall and just not have to put a GPU in there. Yeah, and you'll get some of the power usage back by not having all of the other stuff. So 
in 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 the watts per rack unit it may actually be the same or less um and then you get the performance benefit from newer generation and faster memory and blah 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 um so i think that those kinds of things it, like a lot of those things the enterprise is really excited about and they're ready to get out of their checkbook and that's going to be great for the bottom line if intel or amd get some wins there uh but i don't know how that's going to translate for the desktop and i think intel is, mm. is putting more work in their desktop parts i mean certainly they're both putting a lot of work in the desktop parts but i think intel is more focused on differentiating factors for that design for desktop whereas amd is like well this is what we're building for the enterprise and it's probably going to be reusable for the desktop i mean they make money from the desktop but this is a uh you know a higher concern and if it turns out that the performance is not as high on the desktop that probably means that AMD is going to have better wins on laptops because it's probably going to be power efficiency. It's, mm -hmm. just a, it's just a question of you can get the window of, okay, we dumped this many more watts into it and it's definitely worth it to get that much more performance out of it at the higher end. Today's video is brought to you by CDKeyOffer.com. Now that I've got my compact Alder Lake benchmarking system done, I am free to test a lot of graphics cards in both Windows 10 and Windows 11. And I always get those keys from CDKeyOffer.com. That's because it's a reliable long-term sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead that gets you reasonable prices on legitimate keys for these types of products but it's really not all that they offer they also can give you keys for microsoft office uh keys for playstation codes and even some of the latest pc releases like elden ring and they even carry gaming peripherals in chairs now whatever you need cd key offer probably has you covered and they're always running sales but make sure you use the best code possible and that's the ones provided for the moore's law is dead fans moore's law is dead fans get the biggest discount and if you Go to the link on screen or in the description. You can use code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off Microsoft products and DieShrink to get 3% off everything else on the website. Using these codes really does help Moore's Law is Dead, and it helps you play reasonable prices for games that you want in keys that, frankly, you just have to use half of the time. So, again, use the link in the description. Use Broken Silicon. Use DieShrink depending on the products you're getting, and pay reasonable prices for keys today at CDKeyOffer.com. Com. Right, and well, something I want to start touching on, though, is it's like, and I think I basically said it already, actually, is I don't think AMD cares if they lose desktop performance by 5 to 10% at all. I, I, think, I think that's the right call, and that might be what they're trying to prepare people for with some of the messaging with the IPC uplift for the desktop and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out that it really, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, because even even if they have an inferior product up and down in terms of pure performance in it'll probably be more efficient but yes. you're speaking hypothetically yeah yeah uh, e even if that floor is still rapidly uh rising and i think that even if they lose on raw performance and even if they lose on on a, on a top shelf uh, tier product the floor is still moving really quickly and it is not slowing down and it is absolutely going to take over the, the data center and the enterprise. And we look at all the possible places things could go beyond the mm -hmm. CPU, data processing units, DPU, Pensando, things are covered. We look at like the MI200, MI250. We look at high-performance computing in Oak Ridge and the supercomputers. Yeah, the software stack is not there yet. I mean, if you really want to 
look at it, you know, AMD's trying to take on a whole bunch of multi hundred billion trillion dollar companies. But, uh, you know, the software stack is maybe not there, but the software stack is there good enough for those high performance compute users. And once you have more people using the software stack, you'll build the inertia there and it'll be fine. But it's still lower cost. It's still lower, uh, lower cost per unit compute. Let's say that x86, you know, somebody comes out with a, an incredible ARM design. ARM 9 is just the most amazing thing ever. Who do you think is going to be able to pivot better to a mixed architecture the company that's got all kinds of experience already under its belt with a bunch of chiplets or or Intel, which is kind of married to x86. Yeah, I remember at that Hot Chips in 2019, I forgot who asked Lisa Sue when she was on stage, like, what do you think about ARM and RISC-V? And she's like, they exist and we'll use them when we need to, <laughs> is basically her answer. It's funny. Yeah. So could, could there be a really insanely high performance, you know, AP, monolithic APU that has some Zen cores and has some ARM cores? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, the uh, the folks that were working on Linux on... Um, on the M2 with the M2 Apple stuff that came out there and Rosetta, they're at a point where you could actually, you can theoretically Hackintosh onto any ARM 8.2 compatible um, ARM. There's a couple of special things uh, that are Apple, but mostly it would work on, on ARM 8.2. And um, if we see that is the direction that things are going in, I mean, Microsoft has certainly tried Windows on ARM, and if you could offer consumers a really amazing experience with the right software stack on an ARM-based product, certainly I think AMD would be able to pivot to that a lot easier. And so based on that reasoning, if we have more optimized software that can take advantage of Genoa APUs, for lack of a better way to describe them, or whatever, it looks like AMD is in a better position to pivot to all of those things. We talk about connectivity, like CXL, that whole nonlinear PostgreSQL scaling, and it's like, all right, we can't fix this because we don't have persistent memory. We'll fix the scaling problem by in dramatically increasing our interconnectivity across physical systems, because we're not going to lose multiple physical systems at the same time, except unless it's a software bug. Um, and so with CXL or something like that, we've got the interconnectivity to handle that. And it's like, boom, Pensando can handle, uh, some of the physical link layer stuff of that for the future, but we don't know what they're working on with CXL. We don't know exactly what they're working on with, with some of the other stuff in the software stack, but it looks like they're getting the right people in place to be thinking about those things and planning. And that's really encouraging. Intel, on the other hand, is fighting a little bit of an uphill battle. You know, you, you talk about shedding people. I think that in some in in some respects they they may not be as well off as they could be if they shed even more because mm. if you have the people that are left are really super opinionated and they've been there a long time then they're probably going to have a harder time agreeing on something whereas if you have a small laser focused team a smaller laser focused team they're going to that come can up with do something. things consistently too right? yeah they consistently do something and you touched on two things that i'm just going to throw it at the same time and i guess see which one you bite on more first if that makes sense like this is something i was i mean i was just blown away by amd's financial analyst day because i, I started like trying to like make it clear to people in the moore's laws dead discord like think about for lack of a better term how lazy or boring AMD has been with 
what they've done with their products so far. Zen 2, Zen 3, and Zen 4 look the same. <laughs> if you looked at them from a distance, you go, that's a Zen 2 CPU. And up, turns out it's still just Zen 4, except <laughs> it's got a flashy, you know, IHS on it or something. Like, they're the same overall design. You look at the 5800X3D. Is this some custom monolithic gaming chip bin for 5 gigahertz? It's it's literally the same CCD they've been using for yeah. years with a V-cache layer on it. I, look at their APUs. I mean, it was almost insulting. Cezanne still used Vega over Renoir. They couldn't even be bothered to, but it wasn't worth the money. I think once AMD has enough money... They can start making some really specific products with their IP blocks mm-hmm. if they want to. And they have, I mean, look at all, look at, look at what Intel spent money on. Lakefield, <laughs> it went nowhere. But that's a crazy specific hyper focused product. What happens if AMD doesn't do as many random things, but starts doing laser focused Lakefield like projects that target markets and then actually launches them correctly? Like, <laughs> what is that going to do? To Intel, and and the other thing is just, I just feel like Intel is operating like a company that can do a million things at once, and before they could relative to the competition, but there's so much out there now that it's just, you know, like I have ADHD, the way I work in my office is I'm working on like 10 things at once, (laughs) but that works for me if I just sit there for nine hours, eventually I do get all 10 things done, but if I had to do 100 things at once... I've just got to take my medication and sit down and look at one thing at a time. And I feel like Intel thinks they can do everything at once right now, but there's too much. But And I think AMD knows when to do it, and they haven't even really done it yet. If they start doing these crazy projects, they could really start crushing co- like performance in certain segments. It might actually not be terrible for Intel to uh, decouple itself a little bit from those internal teams because – I'm really excited about Optane. I think Optane is a, is a revolutionary product, and there's nothing else like it, and it is amazing, and we need it for the future of awesome computers. Optane storage, more so than Optane persistent memory, but there is a place in the world for Optane persistent memory. Optane is so fast for storage that we didn't we don't even have a bus to deal with mm-hmm. it. And, I know. And, yeah, and, that, Dave so, Eggleston told me, he was a Micron engineer, that we need CXL yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's like, oh, we use the memory slots. And it's like, well, that has some downsides. But, uh, but okay. Um, and so I think, I think if, if, you know, the engineers working on this kind of stuff, especially if they're, if they're working with companies like Oracle to solve a specific problem, then they can do the marketing and they can launch the product and it will be fine. And yeah, it might be a little disruptive to some of Intel's other business segments. But we saw this over and over again because you know, Intel had hyper-segmented the server market. And in order to make shareholders not unhappy, you know, you had things like the Platinum 8280 being sold essentially as like the 6258R, which Mm. is the same, except for you can only use it in two sockets instead of eight, but one's $8,000 and the other one is $4,000. And so I think that, that with a little bit more autonomy, for those different units in Intel, it probably would be a net better result, but at a cost of maybe disrupting some of those carefully erected, uh, you know, silos, it's, it's going to be super disruptive. Um, 
and maybe you get that from if enough people leave and and you have smaller teams working on stuff i mean that's totally fine uh maybe that's some of the stuff that, that came out from from alder like maybe we'll see some of the kinds of things that apple does which is have multiple competing people working on essentially the same product and then whoever comes up with the the thing that's the best wins in the 11th hour and then that's the product that actually comes to market and does stuff but the the products that, that you're talking about intel has actually done a good job with the engineering and the architecture but it's really weird. They seem to have very bad luck actually marketing it and getting mm-hmm. and and doing the thing. When they did um their their first GPU Z uh, was which eventually became Knight's Landing, they studied Quake I think to do the acceleration, and it turns out that like John Carmack genius level math implementation to do math faster than you could really do math the right way the the readable way um, on hard, hardware architecture. They built a card that would run Quake really fast, but nobody built an engine like that because nobody has people as smart as John Carmack working on their stuff. And so it wasn't really mm. useful to anybody other than people like John Carmack who can see in 11 dimensions. And so I think there, there's been some of that with some of these these more data center oriented products. But also sometimes the data center is like, you know, we'll just solve this problem over Ethernet. We'll just solve this problem in software. We'll just solve this problem a commodity way because we're not going to pay $11,000 a socket anymore, uh, you know, for 28 cores. We're not going to to do this or that. And I think Intel's, you know, certainly with Amazon, uh, you know, looking at some of the this, this, this stuff that Amazon's flooded on the secondary market, Amazon has clearly gotten a good deal from um, from Intel on some of their stuff. And, you know, Intel's probably looking around trying to buy as much time as possible to um, uh, to give itself more runway to worry about those kinds of things. But I think that people inside Intel are smart enough to, to sort of know and recognize these problems. The, the problem is that they may need the freedom to uh, directly address these problems head on, maybe at the cost of stepping on toes of other business units or other bean counters mm-hmm. that might step up and say, hey, this is going to eliminate this revenue stream or this is going to change the way this other revenue stream works. You know, do we need to worry about that? Meanwhile, it seems to me that AMD is hyper-focused on customer results. And it's like, well, if we solve this problem for ANSYS, it's probably going to be good for the whole industry. So let's figure out how we solve this problem for ANSYS, which is maybe a better approach. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just start jumping right into the financial analyst day thing. Melodic Warrior writes in and he says, welcome back, Wendell. After reading only the slides from AMD's financial analyst day, my mind is absolutely blown at everything AMD confirmed from here to about the end of 2024. One of the key things I could not help but notice was that in the slides referring to GPUs, there is more emphasis being put on Radeon Pro SKUs and their software. I'm curious to see where that goes, but in the meantime, what do you think needs to be their focus in order to have a better reputation overall on Windows? So I don't, I would have thought this would have happened. If you look at cDNA and RDNA, there is a lot in common from a software stack point of view. And I got to talk to one of the the guys at AMD a couple of years ago. Um, about the software stack and the similarities between it was, I think it was when our, maybe it was right before RDNA two was going to launch. I don't remember, but if you look at how they've structured things in hardware and how stuff goes into the shaders and how blah, 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 and how Vega was built. And then you look at the Vega Vega's architecture, basically continuing on as CDNA mm-hmm. and then RDNA kind of forking from that. It looked to me like, they were not painting themselves into a corner for those two to come back together at some point. That has not happened yet. 
And so even even though you can run Rock M on Linux, we're finally like it is trying to rip my face off with my fingernails um, to do some of the compute stuff, even with high end graphics cards. You can use Rock M with a 6900. 6900, 6950 XT on Linux. The performance is decent, but it's not as good as the dollar-for-dollar dollar NVIDIA counterparts mm-hmm. with CUDA. And it's like, is that inherent in RDNA? Is that a limitation in RDNA silicon because AMD's worried about people using RDNA silicon in the enterprise supplanting their cDNA products? Or, you know, what what's the deal here? And for the cDNA products... Um, in the enterprise for the specific problems they are trying to solve, they're pretty decent adoption. It's growth that they don't have. For the customers mm-hmm. that they have, it seems like they're very happy. For the people on our forum that have uh, cDNA stuff in the enterprise, it's, I can't believe how inexpensive this was and how much better it is than what we had before. We're paying less than we were and things are running better for whatever it is that they're doing with them. Uh, and that use case varies a little bit. And so I always try to be a fly on the wall and discover a little bit more about that. But for the people that are, there, there's also almost as many people that are, well, we got a couple of demo systems in and tried it, but we couldn't, we had a hard time moving our mm-hmm. stack or we had a hard time, blah, blah, blah. Or we didn't have a John Carmack level genius that was able to deal with juggling libraries or or whatever. And so when we talk about, you know, RDNA pro workstations, I'm thinking like Blender, maybe error correcting memory, and Autodesk, and other companies like that. And I think that that AM, certainly with Milan X and the clout that AMD has built uh, with Milan and Milan X, with companies that are doing insane computational fluid dynamics, basically every company on earth that does CFL, um, I think that it's probably less of an uphill battle to get Autodesk to take them seriously and work with them on pro level drivers. And so if that is the case, then the people that use those products are going to have a good experience with the products. The gamer thing, the gamer, like the gamer driver experience uh, being a little rough around the edges is really just the games and the game aspect of it. And it's like, how willing are game developers to do testing and integration and Blah, blah, blah. It's a different thing when you can get Autodesk or Ansys to sign off on something. If Autodesk says, yes, we have tested RDNA 2 graphics, you can count on it, you can take it to the bank. And AMD actually has already has some wins in medical imaging to the extent that mm-hmm. there are some medical imaging systems that only run on AMD products, AMD workstation products. Um, and so I think that that's less of an uphill battle in the commercial setting than it is a gaming setting. In the gaming setting, AMD almost has to do, it seems like AMD almost has to do all of the work for hmm. the, the game company and then say, you know, here's the fix. Can you please bundle this in? NVIDIA, you know, with some of their stuff, they're doing like runtime patching of like the game binaries. It's like, oh, it's this version of the game. Well, there's a bug here. Let's just patch this. And, and they've probably built some amazing tools that are very non-public in order to be able to, you know, peek inside games and change the way that they interface with the graphics card in order to improve performance. But that's, you know, that's that's not how it's done in the enterprise. That would never fly if you're doing com- computational fluid dynamics or simulation or architecture. It's just, it's just not, the, no one would approach the problem that way. No, and I, there's a certain part of me that goes, 
You know, you can complain about what I'm about to say or not, but at the end of the day, you got to recognize the just tenacity of NVIDIA to just go into game developers and say, hey, numbnuts, we'll do this for you. And like, and the, you know, you can complain that NVIDIA did that, but at least they made things work. However, I worry that's become a crutch for some PC game developers. I think a lot of PC game developers have figured that out and they're like going back to like doing things better themselves now. I've noticed that. But I do feel like five years ago, they kind of just threw up their hands and expected NVIDIA and AMD to do everything for them. And it's because NVIDIA did start doing everything for them. And if <laughs> I mean, these games take so much effort to make. Why would you not? Like, hey, they say they'll port it for us, so yeah. have at it, you know? <laughs> but then you get, like, Arkham games that just don't work on AMD hardware, and they're like, maybe we don't do that again. I'm having this weird flickering problem. Can you guys figure it out for me? Thanks. Oh, you programmed the whole port? <laughs> well, we're not going to stop you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how it feels sometimes. But in the, in the in when you're using professional software, that's not really how it is. But you also have to have that relationship with the company where it's like, okay, we're not going to sell 100,000 units. We're going to sell 10 million units. You're going to have 10 million customers that are trying to use this product, you know, our graphics product with your software product, and it will actually run better or it will actually do this for you or it will actually cost less or it'll actually whatever. And, and, and AMD certainly has carved out a niche for itself in certain sectors in the business class already. And they seem pretty well entrenched in the in the ones that I'm thinking of, but you know those aren't markets that individually will move 10 million units. But that's how you that's how you build, I guess. Get the experience that you need to do that right. How, one thing that you started to talk about that I'm kind of curious to bring up is this balance of like compute, non-gaming performance, and gaming performance. Because from what I'm hearing, I don't think RDNA three is going to go as you know, balls to the walls, this is a compute card, as like Ampere and Lovelace have. But it's packing a lot more FP32 yeah. than, relatively speaking, RDNA 1 and RDNA 2 tried to. Where is that balance between gaming performance and compute performance for the average desktop customer, you think? Because... I, I don't I don't think enough people bring this up. That was a major factor in why people bought Ampere graphics cards. Every review, whether it's just because they were creators, so of course they brought it up, but said, look at how fast NVIDIA encodes. Look at this. You know, the reason I ha I kept a 3070 over a 6700 XT is it was just better at encoding and rendering my videos. Like a lot better, you know, like where is that balance of making it good at other things where maybe that silicon could have been used to just give you more frame rates? No, I think that um, I think that's a that's a really good point, and that's something that I think has been missed as as relatively low hanging fruit, because look at it really it it melts my brain how good of an experience 4K editing is on like the Apple M1, especially mm -hmm. especially like the studio and some of the stuff that goes into that. You don't even it's faster than the Xeon with an FPGA which mm -hmm. the, the Xeon Pro with an FPGA, which should tell you something about how closely the hardware and the software people need to talk to one another. I don't know if that's what happened with, with Adobe and NVIDIA and trying to get everything together and trying to make it, make it all work, but it is head and shoulders better than it was three years ago. Um, even if you haven't upgraded your hardware, even if you're still rocking like a 1080, your encoding and rendering performance in Adobe products, even just Photoshop, is head and shoulders better than it was uh, on Team Green just a few years ago. And it's it's better than it was a few years ago with AMD, but AMD still has a long way to go with some of that. 
and I, I don't really know what the friction is. And it seems like they're like like open broadcaster OBS. It seems like that would be low hanging fruit, but getting OBS to properly leverage the hardware that's there um, almost seems seem it seems like there's some source of friction that I haven't identified because it seems like it would be easy because it's open source, but AMD maybe needs to contribute a little bit of developer time to it. I'm not really sure. They could they could get a lot of mind share by offering some stuff. And they do have AMF. And you know, at one point, the attitude from AMD almost seemed to be it's like, well, we have this. We you know, it's not a, we don't develop that. It's not up to us. We don't really know what to do. And it almost seemed like one of those situations with the game companies where they just needed to go in there and, and tell the de developers like, this is how you do this. And it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I don't know. I don't know what the I don't know what the disconnect is, but that will um, hopefully be continued hopefully they'll continue to improve upon that but i would like to see it improve faster and that may just be a talent shortage like they need to hire more developers i don't know um yeah and i think it's about focus i remember my initial rdna2 reviews where i tested what did i what, what yeah i think i tested a 6800 xt and then like a 3070 and the uh, or 60 yeah 6800 xt and it just literally wouldn't render like in late 2020 <laughs> like in some of my apps it just wouldn't the app was like no so no support just gonna use the cpu and then half a year later it did work but it wasn't that fast and then half a year later it was almost as fast as nvidia so i do think <laughs> yeah with rdna2 they literally said hey we don't want a repeat of what happened with to our drivers in 2019 90 percent of people are just going to use this to game so let's get that done first then professional I mean, then we'll start working on it for professional and gaming, and then we'll make it good, and then hopefully it'll be ready by RDNA 3. Um, which, actually, I've got a couple reader mails on that I think we should segue into now. Kenahoon25 writes, and he says, Hey, Tom and Wendell, what are your thoughts on AMD adding some professional drivers to their RDNA 3 and RDNA 4 lineup? I'm a gamer, but recently I am gaining popularity in my 3D character design and want to go into animations which require ridiculous amounts of VRAM. I want to buy the top RDNA 3 card because it's rumored to have 32 gigabytes of VRAM, but I'm a little hesitant to spend that much money on what is, in my opinion, just a souped-up gaming card with extra RAM. AMD has got to be on top of this if they want to dominate. And uh, 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 we, we already know why. And that is because NVIDIA made the decision to open up CUDA to non-workstation cards. NVIDIA has historically been militant about mm -hmm. locking down their workstation cards um, to prevent you from doing anything that was uh, workstation-y on a non-workstation card. Um, disappointing. But for with CUDA, they didn't. And I think that's because they really wanted everybody to adopt CUDA. And now today, CUDA is entrenched. CUDA is not going anywhere. It is an unstoppable monster. And a lot of researchers and academics and people that are not gearheads uh, mm. don't want to mess with anything that is not CUDA. They just want to do their research. They don't care yeah. about the other stuff. And so AMD really needs to keep that lesson in mind, I think, while they think about professional cards and you know which features are there features that are locked away, does cDNA and RDNA merge together? Is that is it does that does the roadmap for that sort of recombine in the future of the 300 series MI? Will that be you know comparable performance to uh, to RDNA three? Will the silicon you know look sim similar? How is that going to how is that going to fit together? And that maybe also tangentially answers answers the encoding question and some mm. stuff with machine learning and, and some of the other stuff, but they would uh, they would do well to learn from that 
that lesson, I think, because the people like that that are a little bit into Blender and a little bit into that kind of stuff, they could be driving the purchase decision for the Fortune 500, you know, just a few years later. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened with CUDA. Brian Ames writes and he says, Hi, Tom and Wendell. I have a question about graphics card drivers on Linux you may have some insight on. Historically, NVIDIA has been a leader when it comes to software. NVIDIA dominates compute with CUDA compared to OpenCL, and their efforts in regards to game-ready drivers to support virtually every major release seem to outstrip what AMD can do. I think AMD's been ahead of them a few times recently, but yes, in the past for sure. I mean, AMD didn't even have working drivers on games sometimes for months. But recently, though, I've been following Valve's efforts with the Steam Deck and the unique features it brings to gamers through Linux and Proton, like Instant Sleep Wake while gaming and improved performance for some titles like Elden Ring. Through looking into the Steam Deck and gaming on Linux as a whole, it's come to my attention that AMD and NVIDIA have very different approaches to driver support on Linux. Both offer a proprietary driver like a standard practice on Windows, but most AMD systems, including the Steam Deck, opt to use AMD's open source driver for graphics. NVIDIA seems to be slowly moving in this direction, but much of their software stack is still a black box on Linux. Do you think that AMD's approach of distributing drivers as part of the Linux kernel and leveraging community support is an advantage, or is NVIDIA more, NVIDIA's more controlled black box approach still fine? Alternatively, do you think that Linux gaming even matters? Is it going to lose relevancy again like it did after Valve's feeble attempt at Steam machines? So, oh, there's a lot to unpack here. NVIDIA recently changed the way that they package their drivers for Linux to make it slightly less of a terrible, terrible headache that was unnecessarily forced on, on people. They're not really more open, but um, it used to be that NVIDIA would have to build their driver for the specific version of the Linux kernel, and then they would release that driver, and then that driver could be used on your distro if your distro's kernel version matched more or less. And they've switched to packaging it up in such a way that you can use uh, DKMS. Well, I'm glossing over some things here, but they, they packaged the, they've repackaged, they've, uh, NVIDIA has opted to repackage the proprietary parts of their driver in such a way that it is less dependent on the specific kernel version and they provide more generic interfaces with some documentation to those interfaces so that the kernel can be updated independent of you updating your um, uh, video driver. And the reason for that is because even really well-funded distros, it was a maddening experience trying to get the driver uh, to run properly for noobs. And it was often the case that NVIDIA would release a driver update, but it might take a couple of weeks for the driver up to, update to be validated by your distro. And you could get yourself into an impossible situation if you if you elected to run NVIDIA's driver um, for your distro rather than waiting on your distro to, to sort of validate things. Uh, AMD, on the other hand, much more of their driver is open source, but there is still a part of it, the firmware, that is a black box, but there's there's some compute that happens in the black box binary blob. So both of them have aspects mm -hmm. of the driver that is uh, as a black box. It is uh, perhaps fair to say that much more of it is a black box on, on NVIDIA and none of that has changed even with NVIDIA's recent change. Uh, and AMD is, is less of a black box, um, which is nice. It's also a little easier to debug issues because of the openness of, for things like suspend resume, because you know no game was actually designed to support that, and you really have to dot your eyes and cross your t's to be sure that mm -hmm. everything is bug free in order to be able to deal with something like that. Um, but uh, 
yeah, I think that the AMD strategy is a better one for being able to maintain um, uh, something that's bleeding edge, but also something that the Linux community will tolerate. But there's there's several other like there's there's so many rabbit holes with this you go down like the HDMI consortium I think we all really need to grab our torches and pitchforks collectively as a community against the people that do the HDMI spec because HDMI 2.1 there's a whole bunch of things in HDMI 2.1 and you're not required to implement everything in HDMI 2.1 to say that something is HDMI 2.1 in fact you could very trivially trivially implement one or two things in HDMI 2.1 and say it's HDMI 2.1, but then if somebody tries to use HDR or something like that, they'll find that mm -hmm. it, it doesn't actually work. And it's like, well, I thought that was part of the HDMI 2.1 spec. Was, ah, well, it is, but it's optional. Ah. Um, Do but, you think that's because they were just too aggressive? They were, like, tired of being behind DisplayPort, added, like, insane bandwidth and features, and then it's just expensive to implement. And so they're like, never mind, you don't have to add all of it. It's expensive to make that port. Yeah. What do you think that is? And, and they also closed their spec. So mm -hmm. you are not allowed to put certain things in an open source driver if you want that little HDMI certified sticker. Hence, I think we need to grab our torches and pitchforks because that is not acceptable. And I'm surprised that that hasn't gotten gotten more uh, press. And so NVIDIA has a better HDMI implementation in their black box driver right now than AMD does. But that's not AMD's fault. That means we need to grab our torches and pitchforks and, you know, go knock on some doors at the HDMI folks and just be like, what are you, what are you doing? You're not, you're not going to get rich selling specification. And if you think you are, you're in the wrong industry and you need to not do that. Um, well, they kind of could be because DisplayPort took forever, but thank God 2.0 is coming. <laughs> it's coming. It's a good, can't get here fast enough. We swear enough. it is. Yeah. Um, so do I think that AMD's approach of distributing drivers as part of the Linux kernel and leveraging is an advantage? Yes, I think so. Um, and do I think that Linux gaming matters? Is it going to lose relevancy again like it did after Valve's Steam Machine initiative? No, I think that um, eventually we are going to, uh, well, good old games, this way of packaging the past into little containers and being able to run things that way, um, is how we will do things in the future. And Proton and what Valve is doing here, I think matters a lot. Having good, this kind of stuff means that we are less dependent on Windows as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, I thought this was gonna go in a different way. So like how, what, if you, if you go back to the beginning of time, like more than a decade ago, I was doing videos on, and this is the first thing that I was really excited about, was look, you don't have to, you can package Windows inside a virtual machine and pass through a GPU to it. And yeah, you gotta dot your I's and cross your T's with the hardware that you choose. And yeah, you gotta have two graphics cards, so that's gonna be twice as expensive depending on you know how good of a graphics card you want for your games. But you can run Windows with full fat Windowsness in a virtual machine with a real graphics card and play games, but also do your important stuff in Linux and all of the madness that is windows is sequestered inside a sandbox and it's great and no one had to do the sisyphean task of re-implementing anything in windows we've literally just packaged it up in a little box and yeah you still have to have the windows license it's a hundred dollars who cares it's nice i like this i think this is the future and valve said well we're never going to get graphics card companies to let you run virtual machines on a gpu that still hasn't happened and i really wish that it would it has a little bit I'll just there's there's a Pandora is there's cracks in the box. You can see Pandora, th you know, through the cracks in the box, but mostly Pandora has not escaped that box yet. Although I'm doing everything I can to help it escape. Um, but uh, uh, 
and so Valve said, we're going to re-implement all the Windows APIs on Linux, which I would have thought was just madness, just pure. Mm. We're going to re-implement all the insanity of DirectX on Linux in Wine? That seems like craziness. But they have done an incredible job with it, the, the developers that they picked. And um, it is astonishing that it works as well as it does. Uh, absolutely astonishing. And that is one way that you can run. You can run games on, on Linux. Not not sandboxed as much as I would like, but um, you know, still still pretty good. Um, you know, you could have malware that that does bad things to your machine through the GPU, um, and that's less a bit less likely when you um, have multiple GPUs in in the mix. But uh, but I don't think that I think for that reason it is going to live forever because mm -hmm. the games and stuff that you want to run will um, live forever that way. When whenever Windows 25 whenever we're on windows 25 or windows 30 mm -hmm. or whatever it is going to be far easier to get proton working with games from 2022 and before than it is to try to deal with whatever the windows madness du jour is yeah i mean i i think what we're seeing now and i wasn't sure what to expect quite at first with steam deck i mean i thought it would be cool I certainly like when anyone tries to do anything new, <laughs> like, but I wasn't sure if there would be that follow through, but I think we can already say like Trogdor writes in and says, but really, really will the Steam Deck and SteamOS help bring proper gaming to Linux? I think the answer is a clear yes, because it's happening quickly. Like you're quickly seeing so many games be supported very well, faster than I expected. And actually... On the Steam Deck front, what I'm getting more excited about is like the like Mendocino two hundred dollar yeah. gaming device and all of that. Not because necessarily I'm gonna get it, but because yes, but now we're getting to get Proton optimized with these games on a different device. And will <laughs> it just work? If it does, that's a huge that's a crazy good sign that everything's just gonna start working well on any at least AMD product that is <laughs> running Proton, right? moving forward and we just did not see that with steam machines yeah and uh you know valve's been able to do this with zen 2 and from the interviews with gabe he made it seem like that he picked zen 2 because amd was really willing to sell him that at a sweetheart deal he's like we wanted mm -hmm. this thing to be not overly expensive and uh and they've really that they can do rdna plus zen 2 is well, the funny thing is with the uh, APU in the Steam Deck, I knew about Van Gogh since, God, when was it? Like 2020? I mean, that was around forever. The What I always heard is that that was supposed to be in like a flagship thin and light surface book. Mm. And then again, Microsoft just said, never mind, we're not going to use it, just like <laughs> they did with so many AMD products. And then it was supposed to go in something else and no one used it. And so they're like, who will use this? And my understanding is Gabe's like, eh, we will, you know? <laughs> nice. Well, they, they definitely pulled out a win there because it's the perfect product for Zen or for, for what the steam deck would become. And, um, you know, I can't wait for i I'm sure that somewhere inside AMD labs, there's a, there's a Zen three, maybe a Zen four with RDNA something and some HBM memory. Is that going to be just like the game changing APU? I don't know, maybe, but. Well, yeah, and I think people got to remember that actually Zen two has good reason to be around for a while until we get, I don't know what would really spiritually replace what it's being used for right now, which is just cheap, small 
cores. I mean, a Zen 2 CPU core, if you don't have like, like if you look at Renoir's version of it, that they basically just have one CCX for Van Gogh and so on. Because it has less cache and it's just one unified like CCX though compared to Zen 3, a Zen 2 core, I think, takes up like five millimeters squared each. Yeah. So, and Zen 3 takes up actually quite a bit more space in footprint. So if you're talking about a smaller APU, how strong are the graphics? Do you need that extra 30% performance Zen 3 can bring? Or would you rather have it take up half as much space? I think there's a reason for Zen 2 to stick around for a while because it actually has its own die space merits relative to Zen 3. And you can also put that much more power budget toward the uh, toward the, the graphics because those transistors will take up power even when they're not, they're not on. Yeah, and so I don't know what succeeds that. I've heard a decent amount of speculation. It could be like zen 4c like maybe just put one of those eight core ccx's in there or something and see if that works but until then i think zen 2 is just going to keep getting used in tons of stuff guys because it has <laughs> its reasons to in cheap devices um all right well i want to move on to a conversation though kind of looping it back around to some of the stuff we were talking about before um quick jumper writes in and he says hi tom and wendell regarding amd and intel competition how do you think it's going to look in five to 10 years? I mean, right now, AMD seems to be crushing Intel, but they still have a pretty limited budget, relatively speaking. How will the battle look when AMD's half the size or even a similar size to Intel's revenue, if that ever happens? Will we even be talking about AMD versus Intel? Will it just be AMD versus NVIDIA versus another company like Apple? Gosh, I don't know. There's so many different ways it could go. Um... The most likely future seems like something that has ARM because uh, Amazon's Graviton instances are really good, and that will probably consume a fair bit of the margin that um, that Intel and AMD enjoy. And I'm sure that that's something that their their business analysts are are worried about and are and are looking at. Um, I think that AMD um, being fabulous and being relatively know uh, relatively you know low overhead in terms of that they don't have a lot of people around that aren't that are you know have been there for the last 20 years uh is probably a good thing it keeps them nimble to be able mm -hmm. to pivot with how the industry is changing and how uh you know how what the needs of the customers are are changing um i think intel is a little bit more entrenched and the fact that they're opening up their fabs will probably help them a lot um I think that they stand to make a lot of money from having third-party customer designs and things like that uh, go into it. I think anything Intel can do to shorten the time that they have from design to mass production, um, whatever company figures that out first is probably going to win. Mm. And it looks like TSMC is doing the best of that, so it's going to be you know the highest bidder kind of a thing. But um, if in, if if like imagine like a, an Intel Risk Five partnership, for example. If, if Intel can have their state-of-the-art fabs and give access to that to the RISC-V people, and they're not really super upset or worried about RISC-V supplanting their other business units, again, it goes back to the Bob mm. Swan bean counters conversation, but if Intel's not really super worried about that, then the kind of synergy that you get from that could be really good. I don't think we'll see RISC-V take over in 10 years for these kinds of workloads, mm -hmm. but I think everything at like the low end... Um, Risk Five could take over everything tomorrow, and uh, I mean they're really on a on a really solid trajectory. Especially if you've got you know Intel's because Intel's fab still pretty good. 
um, <laughs> class leading, world leading. I mean, you know, certainly. Um, and so in five or 10 years, more diversification and the shareholders would certainly be interested in that, I think. It's like we're not really married to the performance of x86. We're not really married to the performance of ABC XYZ. In five to 10 years, it's less about the gen-on-gen -gen CPU core performance improvement mm. and, and managing and shuffling data. And so I definitely think like silicon photonics could be a game changer. Intel's got is ahead of the curve there. AMD would be facing, you know, acquisition only type things. Probably some nice patents will come out of that. Um, so, you know, whoever figures out silicon photonics as, a, as an interconnect um, will probably, uh, you know, win the universe. But moving data in and out and sort of pre-processing data, it's a bottleneck have, sending all of the data through the CPU. The fabric can do a lot of the work. Other things that are connected to the fabric, like DPUs, can do a lot of the work. So the CPU really does become less and less relevant. Mm. It's, it's the other building blocks um, that go into that. With AI and inferencing and, and that sort of thing, um, the CPU, again, is just less relevant for those kinds of things. I mean, the CPU, you know, for a desktop user experience, sure. But we're talking about things that move trillion-dollar industries. Um, it's going to be all of the, the pieces that go with that. And Intel, you know, they've got their 400 gigabit interconnect, but I don't know if the interconnect people are talking to the PCI Express people or talking to the memory yeah. coherency people or talking to all of that. Meanwhile, AMD, it certainly seems like they're doing that with Pensando and encrypted memory. And they're really dotting a lot of I's and crossing a lot of T's, almost like somebody that's really smart is looking at all of these different threads moving across the industry. And it's like, okay, we have an answer for that. 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 And in, in, in Intel's roadmaps so far, it seems like it's a more of a, a me too, or more of a, well, yeah, we thought about that and here's our solution for that. But it seems almost rushed. Whereas AMD's is more like a metronome like cadence. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, we've kind of touched on it, but just like looking at this, lineup here and again it's like yes i'm aware guys Raphael's coming out this year raptor lake will compete with it fine i'm aware but then next year it seems like phoenix zen 4 v cash that's gonna fight mobile meteor lake if it comes out on time we'll see you know it's already delayed a little bit from what i've heard and then desktop meteor lake arrow lake versus zen 5 if any of these slip any further and I, it just seems like amd's targeting these things really specifically and i know it sounds again the falcon shores thing i know it sounds impressive but i mean it's in three it's in two three years guys it sounds impressive because it's not using today's technology <laughs> there was a there's a patch for the linux kernel that made me think that there was a 24 core alder lake cpu that was imminent for release a 24 fishhawk falls is only that's what it's called it's only e cores no p cores Oh no, only E cores. Only E cores. Uh but ultra low power. And, um, and and you don't think there could be any like driver misreading? Because 24 cores, E cores, that sounds like Raptor Lake maybe being misread, because that is 16 E cores. It was a patch for the Linux kernel. There's a lot of stuff in the like I don't think you could launch an E core only CPU without adding more stuff because there's the E cores don't have a lot of stuff that you would need, like mm -hmm. performance counters. It's like Like you a, need at least two big cores, you think. Yeah. But um 
it seemed like that there were some experiments going on with that. And that could be really good. Like, so imagine that, that, that Intel was going to do it like a two, a two and 24, or maybe it was a, yeah, a two and 24, or maybe it was a two and 22 or something like that. And, uh, or no, it'd be two and 20. Yeah. Two and 20 could make sense. Cause you'd have four threads and then, uh, 20 of the e-cores, maybe that, but something like that for an embedded system, uh, like, you know, like the home server kind of thing, that would be great. That would be amazing. And certainly the die space is there to do it and blah, blah, blah. But even just trying to get my hands on a W680 motherboard, well, there were articles and reviews on W680 for workstation, workstation class, um, Alder Lake. Supposedly, rumor has it, that the W680 unlocks ECC memory, unregistered ECC memory, for just about any Alder Lake CPU, mm. which is a huge departure from Intel in the past and the whole like siloing of things is like, no, we can never do that. It's like, okay, we'll support ECC memory on an i3, but not an i5 or an i7 because we are deathly afraid that somebody might buy an i5 or an i7 instead of a Xeon because we're that much of bean counters. I don't, I mean, that just seems terrible, but um, I don't, I can't even get my hands on a W680 motherboard retail. Like they're, they're out there. Like, why is it, why are, why are workstation class Alder Lake Xeons is there a workstation class Alder Lake Xeons like the 24 core or 24 thread? Uh, are there workstation class Alder Lakes waiting in the wings that have been delayed yes. that we don't know about? And that's why the yeah, motherboard so, is so, you know, I don't know. So, yeah, my it should be, should launch, again, Intel launch dates, <laughs> grain of salt, even if it's official information, in my opinion. But by the end of this year, there should be something called Fishhawk Falls, which is a monolithic single tile 60 not 60 24 core golden cove hmm. sapphire rapids variant that what did i what was it i think it's gonna have four channel memory that supports ecc 64 uh. pcie lanes so whatever they price that at will be interesting because maybe that's their counter to zen 4 if it does really well or something hmm. you know but but and, and is it impressive as the, this all sounds up the e-core thing yeah but amd's got a 64 zen 4c <laughs> Sienna coming out next year. So it has to come out now for me to care about it because if it comes out after a 64 core Zen 4C, why would I care about 24 E cores? I think that um yeah, exactly. And I think that I I think that it's probably not a real thing, but imagine an LGA 1700 cuz W680 is LGA 1700 and there are LGA 1700 things coming, but imagine something on the order of 20 you know, 20 E cores on LGA 1700 for the Xeon package for embedded systems. That would be, that, that would be an easy win right now today. Mm -hmm. You could have that for customers. It could be shipping, you know, did somebody have the foresight to put that together? Is that what I'm seeing in the kernel or is it Fishhawk Falls that's coming later in the year? But by then, AMD can launch a 32 core Zen 4C on AM5 if they want to, too. Yeah. That's just two 16 core chiplets for Zen 4C. And so, again, if it comes out after that, eh. <laughs> Listen, this, this is, this is like, this, it sounds like just two idiots armchairing, you know. Sorry, I don't mean to call you an idiot, but it's just, you know, two bozos. Uh, I'll accept arm, bozo. <laughs> armchairing, you know, it's like, oh, blah, 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 for a billion dollar company. So that's why I'm like, you know, we don't, we don't know. We don't, we have a weird perspective. It doesn't make sense for us to be saying these things, but as evidence for what we're saying being correct, exactly. as, as, as evidence of us not being idiots, I would point you to, Azrock launching 
a 48-node AM4 server. And it sounds like that's completely insane, but there's a, there's a, it's a, it's got these little tiny blades in it and it's AM4 and it runs error correcting memory and hyperscalers cannot get enough of this. And it's not your, like your Amazon hyperscaler. It's the, the, I'm running a data center in a box and I just have a bunch of customers that want 16 cores kind of thing and they can't make them fast enough. And that is a desktop CPU in a server chassis with IPMI and memory slots and the whole nine yards. Each one of those is a little independent system, but the density on that is absolute bananas. It, 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 yeah, I'm looking at it now. That is, yeah, that's it. And I've heard of people doing this before, but it makes even more sense now that you do this with AM4 because people say, people are mad that they haven't launched a new Threadripper non-pro recently but it's like you can get 16 cores with ecc memory on am4 <laughs> it's pretty close to what we used to call hedt guys yeah. and, and and this is something i talked about in a recent video too that i'm just so concerned about intel's lack of ability to execute when they say they will because everything they're designing is around a you're they're in danger i feel of fighting the last war and it's like that doesn't mean you're behind that means you showed up to World War II with wor like the French did with World War I tactics and it just didn't work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm just, because when you look at Meteor Lake, that thing was designed to compete with Zen 4. If it competes with Zen 5, who knows what accelerators Zen 5, like you might be fighting the wrong performance battle if everything keeps getting delayed this far, right? Look at Sapphire Rapids. They had pictures of that over a year ago. Yeah. Like what is where is it like and so we don't even know what it's going to end up competing with and, and that that's my concern when i look at these intel roadmaps and stuff is it's like could they do these things could they do that sure but like if by the time you get this product out amd's got a 32 zen 4c am5 server motherboard that's already competing with fishhawk falls and some things it's like yeah this would have been interesting a year ago dude i don't know <laughs> yeah and can you, you know, are there any use cases left for it beyond the original use case? Like, have people already given up that the thing was coming out and bought something else? Um, well, and that's something I've heard, too. I, I recently had another server contact right into me with paragraphs of information about this where I said, and, and he wrote in after he heard me say in a video, I'm starting to hear server, per people who make server purchasing decisions feel like Intel may be overestimating how entrenched they are because <laughs> it's all well and good, but like they kind AMD kind of, I've heard got their stuff together when it came to Milan X mm -hmm. because they're like, we did it. We've got three or four generations of server chips that came out when we said they would performed how they said they would is better at this and this much more efficient by this amount. Like they said it would be now we can trust AMD. If we buy a Genoa product, we're sure Zen 5's coming out when they say it will. <laughs> and we're sure it's going to perform this well. And again, I just keep coming back to this like 256 versus 64 core thing where I'm like, I know you think you're entrenched, but if you have something four to six times more efficient per socket, mm -hmm. at what point do you just have the money at these companies to hire an entire developer team to rewrite the software to work on AMD? I mean, certainly that's already happened with Amazon and Graviton for anything that, you know, Graviton is dramatically less expensive than anything else x86 and so if amazon is doing that okay yeah it's amazon trillion dollar company blah 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 but if you if your open source stack is good and you know you're going to be able to do that with other arm stuff that's that's bad news for both intel and amd but i think it's worse news for intel 
Yeah, and I think, let me see, I got a question here that I think plays into this. So, this summer, whether you're getting exercise outside or finding ways to stay active indoors like me, it's always nice to have something around that acts as a quick and tasty meal that's also healthy, full of protein, and reasonably priced. For me, that's Vite Ramen, who is a sponsor of this piece of content. Vite Ramen is an American company that pays its workers fair wages and crafts a protein and nutrient-dense meal that takes minutes to make without sacrificing taste. In fact, it's even quicker now with Ramen Go, a product that offers the same calories and taste as their traditional V3 packages you're probably used to now if you're a follower of this channel, while allowing you to even more quickly make your food or bring it to work for lunch. And they keep updating their recipes, like the new V3 edition of Beef Pho, so you keep having fun new flavors to try. Click the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON to save 10% off a variety of different special bundles just for Moore's Laws at fans that include things like spoons, chopsticks, and more if you so choose. This is a great deal for you, and it helps support this channel tremendously. Seriously, I eat it. It's tasty. It's healthy. It's fast. They keep making even better and better recipes that are quicker and quicker to make, and it's reasonably priced. Try Vite Ramen today. Tim K. writes in, Hello, Wendell and Tom. It's really awesome to see someone non-gaming oriented and more workstation-like oriented who does that type of content on this channel. No offense, Tom. I wasn't going to take offense, but <laughs> now I kind of do that you say no offense. Sorry. But uh, it's amazing how much progress AMD and Intel have made these past years and the new hardware that video editors and content creators in general can really take advantage of now. However, there are some important factors that I think need to be considered, especially since hardware is so fast now. It's seeming like it's all down to hardware acceleration support that applications give to certain types of hardware. Given to someone who's a video editor, how important will it be in the future for AMD to start gaining more rights to different codecs, licenses, to support their hardware better on certain programs? Because I think it also just is important to not only have a million cores in your CPU, but to also have all the software support needed to actually leverage them. Yeah, I think this is something that AMD does miss out on and it's not necessarily like you can still force of will solve it. So my my main Threadripper system, I would not trade it for anything. 32 cores of madness. Mm -hmm. Now Threadripper Pro with 512 gigs of memory. When I was on the non-pro, I was like, I'll probably never need more than 256 gigs of memory. And then it's like, I'll just leave programs open for months at a time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and never reboot. It's like, okay, well, guess I need more memory. Um, I mean, yeah, and like me with a 3950X, much smaller, but still, it's like, yeah, I'll have a video uh, encoding while I edit another video at the same time, because I can, why not? Yeah, I had, uh, it's just the level of performance that, uh, it's it's just, it's a joy to use. I can't, I can't really describe it. And it's not as fast as a 5950X, and it's definitely not as fast mm -hmm. as like even like a 12700K for those kinds of things. But it is so consistent in its performance that I would not trade that for anything. And um, uh, the it would be nice if there was better hardware acceleration for things. But I think that depends almost as much, if not more, on the software stack as it does on uh, adding some special sauce hardware in there to make everything uh, work a little bit better. Uh, you know, quick sync. The next, the AM5 stuff, I think the rumor is mm -hmm. that everything is going to have a GPU. I um, think they basically confirmed that now publicly, too. Yeah, so that means that we could have things like QuickSync. Um, we can count on that and get that implemented and, and blah, blah, blah. 
but with 32 and 64 cores, just the sheer force of will of that processor, you can solve whatever whatever kind of a problem you throw at it. But um, it, it's not wrong. I mean, for like AV1 acceleration or H.264 or H.265 acceleration, it's really good. But at the same time, even if you have hardware H.264 and H.265 acceleration, you don't always get to use the hardware acceleration because you, you want things at a different color bit depth or you want you know to try to render something down into HDR and the silicon doesn't support that and it has to fall back to something that's like kind of a software step. Sometimes uh, the bitrate, uh, a lot of people have done articles where you know you're going to do the quick sync encoding at a really high bitrate but then you do software at a really high bitrate and it's like wait a minute, the output of this is different. It's a non-deterministic you know output from the algorithm and even though the bitrate is the same, one clearly looks better than the other so the bitrate is not everything that it's cracked up to be and it's like what do we what do we you know how do we do this in a deterministic way so that the output from my render exactly matches the output from your render and it's like well i guess we're falling back to cpu rendering um and so it's not the hardware acceleration is not necessarily all of it but it, there is a huge disconnect between the people doing the software and the hardware that's there and the best thing for amd is to get more of their hardware in more people's hands so that it's like, this is really slow. Is there a better way I can do this? Oh, it turns out, yes, I can use this instruction set or I can do this or I can do that. And now it'll, now it'll be faster. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you think putting some accelerators on there here and there, like I, it sounds like at least, well, they, yeah, I know that at least Genoa has some accelerators for moving data between like an SSD and a PCIe card without touching the CPU cores. Again, kind of like a PS5 thing. There's no proof yet that's going to be in Phoenix or Raphael, but I really would suspect it would be. <laughs> I'll give you the spoiler. That's already there now. And you can do that on Epic Milan. Um, no problem. It is a 100% PCIe bus thing. And your, 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 your IOMMU groups have to be a certain way. And your bus thing has to be a certain way. But if you have the hardware for it, you absolutely can transfer things from one GPU's memory to another GPU's memory without touching the CPU. And that's there right now today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't, uh, the, that's the problem though when I talk to the people working on this stuff is I don't understand why it's special now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's operating system support and also making sure that it's part of the platform validation. So mm -hmm. if you, you know, I, we have some people that are trying to do like PCIe pass through on desktop platforms. And sometimes it does work on an AM4 desktop motherboard. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it seems like your IOMMU groups will be good to be able to do that, but then you get tons of PCI, PCIe address errors. Sometimes some motherboards enable 10-bit PCIe addressing. Sometimes motherboards don't enable 10-bit PCIe addressing. Um, there's a lot of potential gotchas and there's a lot of variation from board to board and it wasn't included in the spec and it wasn't included in the validation. Now mm. it's all going to be part of the thing. And so if you had a, if you had, you know, like super micro that was building a system for somebody and they're like, we are going to buy a thousand of these, please help us make sure this works. They will help you make sure it works and they'll go back to AMD and fix it and it's fine. But if you're just, you know, a rando like me trying to get uh, a GPU to work in a virtual machine or share one GPU among multiple virtual machines, um, you're not necessarily guaranteed that that use case is going to work. Uh, Broadcom, uh, Broadcom, HBA, and RAID controllers are uh, really only tested for their customers. Like you can buy Broadcom adapters as a customer, but it is absolutely like fingernails on, on a chalkboard, pull your hair out, insanity if you trip over one of the bugs because support generally can't help you. And their cards have a lot of bugs when you start to get 
outside typical use cases, and it's because they are built to be as fast as possible. They're built to dump information from the storage device to the bus, and it will trip over its own shoelaces if everything is not exactly perfect or the PCIe latency timer is not exactly perfect or if the addressing mode is in a slightly different thing than it expects. Um, and so if you had somebody that was, you know, trying to use uh, direct storage, you know, mm-hmm. Microsoft's new direct storage uh, API, which is in beta with one of those, it's going, they're going to have a bad time. Um, so there's a lot of stuff like that. that, that so yeah. you think like it could be like an enhanced, better accelerator, but more importantly, it's more general purpose and validated to work outside of many more different scenarios, right? Right, yeah. And as, that takes everybody, again, getting together, people that are, no, don't normally go to meetings together, getting together, making sure that it works so that everybody has a good experience. Um, it's not really, It's it's been there for a couple generations server side, but uh, it's not really, you know, the dirty secret is that that PCIe to PCIe communication, if you have the appropriate PCIe fabric, that is actually faster for machine learning and mm-hmm. and applications than like uh, NVIDIA's uh, NVBridge stuff. You can do it faster oh. over the PCIe bus than you can with lower latency, but you have to have your I's dotted and your T's crossed with the PCIe fabric, and it was just easier for NVIDIA to do it over their own interface. Hmm. Well, let me ask this one too then. Dylan writes in, Hey, Tom and Wendell, love to see you guys on a podcast again. I have a simple question. What will the majority of PC users feel in benefits in day-to-day usage of having AI engines on AMD and Intel CPUs? Will it mostly be quicker data reading for documents, data transfer between storage to CPU for games or what? And this is like, I've heard Meteor Lake uh, has a VPU on it. That, uh, and I honestly don't even know the full extent of it yet. I should probably ask more. Uh, again, but and then that Zen Five in a couple interviews, Robert Halleck was like almost directly saying we're going to have some like neural engine like accelerators in some Zen Five products. So like, how do you think that'll help? It's going to ultimately be up to the software, and so the hardware is there. You know, the software people maybe have been screaming for something like this, and so now the hardware is going to be there. It's going to be up to the software people to do something interesting. Is it going to be something pedestrian like a better background keying in Zoom? Is it automatically going to filter out your background mm. to do that? I don't know. Yeah, Zoom could use some improvements on that, my lord. <laughs> you know, uh, is it is it going to be other stuff in terms of like is it are you going to use that for data processing? Eh, probably not. I don't think so because it's going to be probably non deterministic. Um, I don't know. It just depends on how it's implemented and and what it's actually what problem it's actually trying to solve. It's not going to make reading data off of a storage device faster. Mm-hmm. It's not going to uh, make your computer feel faster because it responds immediately. Um, but uh, it is uh, the last time I saw something like that that really impressed me was a uh, Coral.ai. It's an M.2 um, that does um, uh, AI inferencing and 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 things like that. Well, it's TensorCore Lite, and you can do video inferencing um, on that. And so this little thing, like with two mm-hmm. two TensorCore units, is, uses about 15 watts of power. The one, the single chip one, uses like seven watts of power, and it does as good with TensorFlow image recognition as 170 watt um, uh, uh, CUDA um, Turing. Uh, the Turing uh, era um, inferencing. It's 15 watts versus 170. Mm-hmm. And 
I'm blown away by how good it is. So like if you want to run your like your security cameras through it and do object recognition and be like, this doesn't belong here and this is over here, you can do it in 15 watts. That's a that's a lot different than 170 watts. And that's with, you know, 16 cameras running through it. Um, it's kind of mind blowing we can do that in 15 watts. Um, I haven't seen anything, uh, any any applications beyond like augmented reality and stuff that makes sense in mobile devices. Mm -hmm. uh, where it's like, okay, this is a clearly awesome, mind-blowing use case. Desktop use case, even things like RTX voice, it turns out like once you've got the algorithm, you can just do that. You can just power through that with CPU. Training it is a lot faster having that acceleration, but once it's trained, it'll run on anything. Well, um, yeah, I, I think there's just a lot of little things like using Google Translate's camera application to like take a picture of something in another language and then it translates it but there's that like 10 second buffer between when it figures <laughs> it all out you know yeah. sometimes and it's it's got variable amounts of quality i think putting these neural engines all this is a balancing act and it's like do they really need you know 24 cores instead of 20 cores or should we make it 20 cores put a neural engine on there and now as developers program for it when they know it's there Google imaging can just instantly translate it instead of it taking five seconds or something. Well, consider that the first time I saw something that was a neat application of this was I think Nirvana from Intel at Computex in 2018. And one of the videos I did in 2018 for Computex was, was uh, <laughs> the short version of it, and I wish I had been this succinct then, was I'm shook because I just went to Computex and we didn't talk about desktop compute processors. We talked about 5G and Nirvana, and AI, and inferencing, and all these things that were not anything to do with desktop compute. And what little bit of desktop compute we had was that five gigahertz 28 core processor. And so, and then it was like, oh wait, that was with a one horsepower chiller. Oops, we forgot to mention mm -hmm. that. And they then, plugged it into a refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then Intel sold off their 5G stuff. And then there was the whole like Qualcomm 5g scandal which i think was very scandalous with with apple I, i'm surprised that apple didn't face really severe penalties for that and so like you know all of the stuff that we that they demoed then uh none of it has really come to pass and mm. nirvana you know is like here's a usb stick that's like the 15 watt accelerator uh and it's like here's nirvana and it's going to do all this and it was all of the promises of of google's you know, implementation on Coral.ai, but it never came to pass. And Coral.ai mm. is actually being used in some products now. Um, and Tensor Cores are are here to stay, and Nirvana, the software stack for that, is not not a thing, not really. And so, you know, some of that may come back with one API because it promises some of that, but they've got a, a real uphill battle ahead of them because of all the other, uh, because the areas where other vendors are already entrenched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of just like other uses for like neural engines and stuff too. And I don't know if you knew this. I I, I read this in an article, and then I sent it to an AMD contact, and I'm like, "Can Rembrandt really do this?" And he said, "Yeah, if you throw on a Netflix video in a window on a laptop with Rembrandt, it will take that window and run it at 24 frames on that part of the." laptop screen and then the other th parts when you're moving the mouse runs at 60 hertz but they can keep part of the monitor running kind of at like 60 at 24 hertz to save energy and i'm like there's no neural engine right how'd you do that and he's like it was work but it actually works pretty well <laughs> so it's like 
that's the kind of things I've had people promise to me neural engines would do, and yet they managed to do it without one. So I can only imagine, I yeah. really think it's just going to be little things being snappier and quicker, but it's going to be hard to quantify. But at the end of the day, the neural engine took up as much space as like one core. So that's why they added that instead of an extra core. Yeah, I think I don't, I don't, uh, it would be up to the operating system to implement something like that. And I just, uh, the, it's just, I don't, I don't, it's the nice thing about a neural engine is that it's potentially much lower latency in, uh, when you have a, when you're executing some of those, the neural nets that are trained because the 170 watt GPU that I'm using there's probably 500 milliseconds of latency when it's dealing with 16 um, video feeds. With the Coral.ai accelerator, it's like 150 milliseconds, 100 milliseconds, and that's probably an overestimate. And that's just, how does it do that? Yeah. Because the hardware is built to do exactly that one thing. Yeah, and it's, I think a lot of this too is we're not going to know until it's commonplace and everything, and then the developers use it. I was talking to a 6G engineer the other day, who I might get on the podcast, and she was saying like, well, we didn't know about Uber, like basically the location accuracy with 4G is what allowed Uber to even exist, right? And no one was like, we're going to replace cabs. You know, the, when we made 4G, it was just like, it'd be nice if it could do these things. And then the developers were the ones yeah. that came up with all these location-based apps we couldn't do before and weren't even worried about. Yeah, it's a it's kind of like AVX 512 right now, except in the early days of AVX 512 when literally nothing used it. And there will probably be a couple, because AVX 512 is not useless, but there's just not a lot of things that use AVX 512. It's like, well, we'll probably have this, but not a lot of things will use this. But then maybe there might be that killer application that uses it, which will make it worth it. I don't know. How um, important do you think it's going to be for Zen 4 that they have 16 cores on in desktop that have AVX 512 support? Although I don't know that it's like, like I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, like native. It's like dual 256-bit, but... Like, or t- dual AVX 256 is my understanding. But like, how important is it that it has that and then they've just lasered off AVX 512 on Alder Lake and then I'm assuming then also Raptor Lake? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's it's really down to the software. If the software stack can use that to accelerate user experience stuff, then that would be great. I, I'm all for it. But right now today, it doesn't make a lot of difference. If you run today's software with that tomorrow, Mm-hmm. yeah i guess it's hard to say all right i've got two final questions here that i kind of wanted to throw at you i've got one i got like kind of a big one to tie it up but i do want to throw this out as its own question first dr forbin writes in and he says last and current generation g computers with s- small form factor were heavily popular for many of us just a few years ago has nvidia and its power draw totally killed high-end gpus going into small form factor builds it seems to me if i build any small form factor pc down the road the only way i can do it is an expensive water-cooled build and i bring this up as just kind of a springboard to just i like to ask people about this it's been two years since we talked ampere upped power consumption i'm sure we talked about that back then but what do you think about i mean top lovelace is going to use at least 450 watts you know could use up to 600 it's looking pretty crazy (laughs) (laughs) yeah it looks like the next generation really is just gonna is gonna go up even more um i built a small form factor system that has a 3080 and ultimately, I ha- it's it, it's dual 240 millimeter radiators in the Cooler Master 
the CM200. So it's not even like I didn't go crazy in, in like an in-case M1 or anything. And uh, it's nice and it's not insanely loud. Um, but yeah, I don't, I can't imagine, you know, the 30, it, before I did water cooling and it was just the mm -hmm. air cooled 3080, it was, it was uncomfortably warm in that tiny case. So I, uh, yeah, I built a micro ATX build a few years ago for my Zen 2 system that I'm still using. And I went to barely micro ATX, like compact, compact micro ATX. Like, honestly, it's smaller than some ITX cases. And I thought, but I went this much bigger because I just assume this will always be able to fit the flagship graphics card as long <laughs> as I budget a little more space. And here I am, and I'm like, no, I already can't fit like a 3090 in there. Or there's like a very short list of 3090s that would fit. Um, and I'm using a 3070, which I'm happy with, but I'm thinking about like, what... You know, I, I'll just drop a teaser. A video I'm working on for next week, hopefully, is kind of looking at what the reference cooler size and, like, what's going on with the size of coolers behind the scenes with Lovelace. And I'm sitting here going, I just, you never know. The 4080 itself could be three-slot minimum. And what happens? Is that going to filter down into three-slot 4070s? I mean, at what point can I not even get a high-end, you know, graphics card in a case this big? And... How much ground are they seeding to AMD, which by all accounts, I believe, is going to use a little more energy than before? Re Again, it's all relative. I say <laughs> a little because I'm like 400 watts or less, probably. Maybe they'll have some crazy version, but the overwhelming majority of their stack is probably going to be close to the power usage of the previous gen, whereas NVIDIA is just doubling power consumption. Like, how important do you think that is to people? Like, because I keep wondering, like, what different people I interview's opinion is on how that comes to a head, because we always up power consumption here and there, but... When do people actually sit down and go, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> when the breaker starts flipping. <laughs> that's what I, that's what, I, that's the conclusion I've come to is it's like when the PC turns off the power in your room, that is when people will finally get the idea that there's an issue here. <laughs> that's probably really it for the desktop performance. I mean, really, but, uh, you know, I had a, I got a founder's edition 3090 that, that I bought on launch day and I ran it pretty hard, but I didn't do anything you know, out of spec. I mean, it was the one that I always used for benchmarking and I was playing games on it and blah, blah, blah. So I, I kept it busy a lot and the, the memory temperature really concerned me and it finally actually died. If it died mm. about eight months in and, um, it would show up in Linux and I could do stuff with it in Linux. And so there's a, you can, you can run virtual GPUs on it and there's, there's a bunch of command line utilities in Linux that'll let you poke at the card and there was some stuff that I was seeing in Linux that strongly suggested that it couldn't address all of its memory, so it just gave up. So that would, that would suggest that, yeah, you really couldn't run the memory at 95C all the time, which was, you know, the thing from NVIDIA was like, that's by design, it's totally okay. And it's like, well, Silicon doesn't like 95C. I mean, even, even Silicon that's designed for 115C, it'll last longer if you run it at, you know, 70 versus 90 or 110 and uh you know but still lower than the 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 threshold temperature so yeah i well, mean I, there's going to be stuff that runs hot and they're going to tell us oh it's totally fine if it runs hot but i'm not going to believe a word of it until they well yeah and it's like i think there is some silicon like the 290x that was 
you know, supposedly built for like 90 or 95C. I had one of those, a couple of those used for mining. They seem to work fine for years at 95C. So I kind of believe AMD that the 290X was built to run at that temperature. But when it comes to Ampere, which of course I've heard of tons of hardware failures from in the top end there with uh, the GA102 die. I think what that tells you is it was not designed to run that hot and they last minute <laughs> overclocked it. Like this was an example of that. Yeah. The one thing I'll say about Lovelace though is there is this TSMC node coming in a few years called N4X. This is, you know, a version of their four nanometer node that they are specifically targeting to be built to run at super high voltages without completely losing all efficiency. And I wonder how much NVIDIA is borrowing for that in there, as they'll call it, custom four nanometer node to run that high. I, I would agree, though, until they prove to me it won't break at that temperature. I don't know if I believe them. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just, uh, I mean, we're going, the next generation from, I mean, the, so we know where AMD CPU is going to be. And the absolute mm -hmm. maximum power through the sockets, what, like 230, 240 watts? And, yeah. And motherboard power and everything else, you know, maybe another 100 watts. So that's 350. So you've got a, a budget of up to 1,000 watts to work with before you start really having breaker problems. And that is, it's like, this is the In only... In the U.S., yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is the only thing on this circuit. And you're still going to have breaker problems. Um so that's not really a lot of that's not really super far off from where we are now. I mean, even though even though the 3090 is 450 watts, a lot of the safeties in existing power supplies, even from brands like Seasonic, had some problems because the mm -hmm. you know we're on a one millisecond time scale, it might be a 900 watt draw before it it leveled off, and the Seasonic's like, oh, that's clearly a short. I was like, well, no, turns no. out <laughs> <laughs> that's just what it does. Yeah. So, uh. I'm sure that they're going to deal with things like that in the next generation now that they know to look for it. But at the same time, that is kind of crazy that this is the way that we have to juice performance is by demanding something that uses so much more power. Um, but, you know, if you go all the way back to the 80s, you know, the IBM XT, the entire machine, hard drive and all, was like 80 watts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's. I, I think they're doing this because this is all they can do when AMD's got I, what I think will probably even be 3D stacked at a minimum multiple chiplets for RDNA 3. And they're able to kind of take, you know, multiple over 100 millimeter squared 5 nanometer dies, a 6 nanometer die. I mean, they're throwing probably at least 800 millimeter squared of silicon at the problem. Yeah. And so they don't have to overclock it. And NVIDIA has to use this monolithic... Uh, I'm sure ultra expensive custom four nanometer node and ramp up the clocks because that's what you got to do when you're not using chiplets at a certain point. Yeah. And I, I just, I remember my Lovelace leak earlier this year where I was hearing from all sources that half of them expected it over 500 watts. Most people said it'll max out at 600 and it's got to be over five, 450 watts. And I'm like, I put 450 to 600 watts because that is, I'm sure, what the top card will be with Lovelace. But it's funny when I heard about this briefing they were giving to their partners for a 600-watt 4090 they were planning to launch. And I remember saying in a video, you know, I said 450 to 600 watts. Most of my sources actually said it was over 500 watts, but I put 450 to 600 because there's part of me that just goes, no way. <laughs> that can't possibly work. There's no way they're going to. And I keep hearing about them going back and forth. I just have to believe that, yes, they'll have some insane card at the top, but 
if they have a if they have a 70 class card over 300 watts it just sounds crazy to me like <laughs> i don't i don't care if the top card requires a dedicated like 20 amp line to the pc or something <laughs> but if they actually push the 4080 above 400 watts that just sounds absurd to me yeah i don't there's got to be something better at the low end uh you know the the card that uh blew me away with how good it was with how little power it used was the 6600 um xt from amd and mm -hmm. you can if you underclock it just a little bit you can get it under the 75 watt pcie power limitation most of the time and it's still over 100 fps in in most games most graphic settings at, at 1080p that is insanely efficient it's shockingly efficient so i uh, you know maybe we'll have more of that in the next generation maybe like the mainstream card like whatever that is it's like oh it's mm -hmm. twice as fast as a 6600 and it doesn't require pcie power well uh i believe navi 33 is targeting around navi 21 performance so that is about double a 6600 xt I, I hear it's about 200 watts ish so whatever that ends up being 180 to 230 however it's still on six nanometer yeah so well. that's the interesting thing so they can spit out a ton of those you have to wonder if they make like a laptop version on four nanometer it's totally conceivable they could make that thing pretty close to what you're saying yeah yeah it's uh and i think there's a lot of oh there's a lot of people that are happy with that level of performance um especially at a you know a 250 350 price point yeah i that's something i keep thinking about too just at what point do people not care as like because if they double performance again and then double it again a year and a half after that <laughs> yeah. at what point are people like dude a three a 400 card runs 4k 120 i'm, <laughs> I, I'm out yeah. I, I don't really care what you make anymore i almost wonder at what point the innovation bites them in the ass for how much they can charge for it because no one needs more. Um, but that, that that's good. That brings me to like the final thing that I wanted to ask you then. Because um, we've kind of been dancing around it, but let, let me just directly ask you this question. Uh, let me think exactly how to phrase it too. Like, to maximize their potential success, what does NVIDIA have to do well? What does AMD have to do well? And what does Intel have to do well? Like, and you can take that to mean, what do they need to fix? But like, what do you think these companies at this, because they're all doing pretty great. I mean, Intel's arguably faltering, but they're still, come on, they're still a leading Silicon company <laughs> that towers above almost everyone else. Like, what do you think these three companies, each one needs to do well to kind of get to the next level? Like, what do they need to focus on? I think uh, I think NVIDIA knows what it needs to do, and it needs it needs more help on the processor ARM side of things. Um, Fab would certainly help, but I think they've moved away from Samsung because I think they feel like they're, you know, the Ampere products maybe weren't as good as they could have been because their enterprise, one of their enterprise products was not on Samsung, and it was fine. And so they were probably looking at that as like, oh, maybe Samsung, maybe that relationship is cool a little bit. So I think they're they're already taking steps um to make things a, l a little bit better but they're going to have to make sure that they really thread the needle um uh they're going to really have to thread the needle with that with amd i think that amd software stack is probably the thing that they would have to focus on now because the the die is already cast with pretty much everything else so it's, mm. it's going to be motherboard validation peripheral validation testing 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 all the weird stuff testing all the bizarro land you know uh pcie stuff making sure that consumers are going to have a a good experience 
um, with their their CPU stack, with their GPU stack, um, I, the die is probably also already cast for RDNA 3, and it is going to be down to the positive driver experience. Whatever they've done in the last six months, they need more of that because the mm-hmm. last six months has has been a night and day difference in terms of what they're delivering with F- Absolutely. F- FSR2 and the stability and, and everything else. So I think they know what they need and they're finally putting the attention in. I would say double down. Like whatever you've been doing in the last six months, it's great. Double it because we need more. We need more of that to go that way. Intel, Intel has, it seems like Intel needs a lot of attention in their GPU stack and their GPU software. It seems like they've got the hardware because we saw it at Tencent in China, but it seems like the software is is the holdup. It also seems like that uh, that Intel needs to you know deal with it if they're not going to have the top-end desktop part. They don't have to juice their CPUs to 300 watts in order to get the desktop performance crown. They just have to make a good product um, and sell it at a reasonable price. But you know, I, I, there seems to be some... It's like we have to, you know, because like the 12700 and the 12900 have almost identical gaming performance. And the 12700 mm-hmm. at $300 is a, is a really good deal. I, I agree. I, I recommend that in the i5 to everyone. It's like yeah. incredible performance for the price. But if you look at the, the i9, it's almost like they were like, no, we must win now. And it's just they didn't need to juice it that much in order to say that, oh, we, we win even in multi-core, which is, I think, why they did that. They didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't need to do that. It's And it, it made the product objectively worse in my opinion but the, the 12700 is a good product well the 12900 is a good product too but they just didn't need to they didn't they didn't need to overclock it and they don't need to charge quite as much as they want but i'm sure that they would love to be charging more but they're not able to in this climate so you know having a, a hard look at those things is probably good yeah um you know and that does bring me to one question i forgot to ask you which ties exactly into what you just said Swiggles writes in and he says, with all this inclination to try between AMD and Intel, how do you see next-gen advancing performance tiers? Do you think we'll get the effective death of dual cores soon (laughs) and beyond in Chromebooks? And I think this is an interesting question because at what point do we get good eight cores below 200, 12 cores below 300, and dual cores practically not exist? There will always be dual cores for something. But at what point do we basically not have dual cores anymore? Because I still can't believe they're making dual core celerons i uh i'm surprised that day is not today i'm honestly surprised that the the 12 400 was not labeled an i3 six core i3 and that mm-hmm. the, the four core was the pentium like that would like we don't a two core four thread come on come on intel come on that's the bean counters not wanting to you know de-silo their product stacks but the time has come the time 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 already came a couple of years ago as a matter of fact so, but the problem is, what is AMD competing with at the one hundred dollar price point? They have, they don't even make R threes anymore, <laughs> practically. But that's because every chiplet they, they've already made, they've already sold at a higher tier. It's different. It's a different problem. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, there are rumors, and I've said that the i three should be four cores, eight threads again for Raptor Lake. But there are suggestions they may consider like six cores for at least the K model. Yeah. So I guess. But I, I think whatever they do, it doesn't matter. That Celeron can't be two threads. <laughs> like, I don't care what you do with the i3. Like, that's just absurd. Like, I've seen reviews on Newegg for it, and it's like one star. It's like, the thing doesn't work. Like, it doesn't work anymore. No, There's no application that just uses one core and doesn't get bogged down. Yeah. 
yeah it's but meanwhile the 12400 with big with you know four beefy p cores and no e cores that's a pretty reasonable system mm-hmm. and intel has regularly been selling that at least with like micro center and places like that it has regularly been on fire sale for just over a hundred dollars and i get the i3 for i think 80 so it's like 80 versus 120 it's like well i should just get the six core yeah, this that's what I've been thinking about too. Though is it's like because you can upgrade to Raptor Lake with Intel. There's an argument that if you're going to plan to upgrade in the future and you're gaming at 60 hertz, why don't you just get the i3 and then you can upgrade to a 24 core Raptor Lake when you need to? Because that thing's as strong as a 5600x in gaming almost. It's actually kind of yeah. crazy what they can do with just four cores. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then just switch it out for something else later. And uh, if you have a really expensive motherboard, you could over you can do the B clock overclocking with the 12400. But uh, you know the twelve four hundred also will will PL two all the time, uh, and so you get you know it's the difference between eleven thousand ish and thirteen thousand ish in Cinebench if you just you have a motherboard for it that will let you PL two infinitely. And it's just four cores, so it's not using like three hundred watts. It's yeah, like going yeah. up to like ninety five or something, which is totally reasonable. Or the twelve the twelve four hundred is six cores. That's the one I was talking about. Is uh, okay. it'll do um, it's the difference between eleven thousand and. 13, almost 13,000 in Cinebench if you just let it turbo all the time with its six Alder Lake P-Cores. Yeah, and then we're just arguing about a 5% performance dis- difference in $700 CPUs. <laughs> most people are probably buying the i5 you're talking about. And yeah. when it comes to Raptor Lake and Zen 4, everything's going to be great under <laughs> $500 and perform pretty much the same probably. So. Yep, yep. All right. Well, we got to everything I had on the list. I mean, unless there's anything else you wanted to discuss while you're here. No, thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Well, I mean, tell everybody where they can find you, you know, promote yourself here. Oh, uh, just Wendell level one text level, the number one text. We have a forum forum.level1text.com, but you can find me or not. It's fine. I'm just your friendly (laughs) internet computer janitor. It's totally fine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I'll have a link in the description for that. And then I guess to everyone else, you know, subscribe to Broken Silicon on your podcast app of choosing. Give us a review. We have a Patreon. We have a Discord you get access to. We have tons of exclusive content if you support us there. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. See ya. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. 
I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Full, A.V., Anthony Gareffa, Greg Pataki, Mohamed Al-Kawari, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, Little Germany, Jan Rauner, Daniel Hyde, Ivan K., Brian Riggleman, Joaquin Hagen, Sam Miller, Deke, Thomas Rupp, Mechanical Philosopher, Terrence Herod, SNES Chalmers, Tom Bailey, Greg T. Wanchuk, Andrew S., Frank Zelinski, Daniel D, MJB1, Eric Jackson, Justice Brennan, Sammy Good, Valko Malev, Boss Haas, Nicholas Buckner, Phantom G Spantum, Jonathan, Michael Johnson, General Drips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Aziris, Gregory S. Acker, Dominique Koch, Jake Dude23. Jake Martin, my name is nobody. Caillou Markelly, Hardforroom.com, Original Ross, Slicky, Stefan, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Chris Frey, Butler, Jeremy Scalen, Sarcastro, Stefan Hart, Jason B, Meat and Pork, Stu, Tim Robb, Luis Correa, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jeskowiak, Travis Gooden, Colden Mobley, Nanian, Chris Rich, Deepest Learners, Mad, Zutsu Taylor, Stefan Coates, Michael McGee, Chuck Gilliden, Sammy Malas, Greg, Ah Trini, Patrick Rowe, Amiable Chief, Brett Summers, Daniel Nugin, Stephen Dick, Tommy, Kunden, Brucha, Mark Mitchell, Mac Daffy, Dalman Peterson, James Anderson, Y. Tree, Mark Raidmaker, Seth Thomas, 3DS Boy, Hal Buma, Norithio, Mando, Matthew Landavazo, Stefan, Coladic, Henry Zhang, Jensen N, F7GOS, The Grid, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Jason Bowen, Noah Nicoella, Hexapuma, Chrysantine, Jerome Ferriera, Zavito3, DSIS, Thomas A. Teef, Klein Britannian, DNA Tech, 50C Desert, Axel Cisneros, Royce Mayer, Charles Russell, Reginald Aria, Morphysis, Teak Onum, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Sandy Garrido Saunderson, David Eastland, Cameron, Andre Jacques, Game and Six Rangan, Jeff Sadler, Eric Osborne, Loophole 35, Winstar, Joker, James I. Radner, Corey Leonard, Sammy Malas, John Shin, and thank you to Zahara for the music. 